All right, I do believe we are live. Welcome everybody to another episode of the Break the Rules stream. I'm your host, Lev Polyakov. Slava Ukraine. Slava Ukraine. Let me point it in the right direction. There we go. Slava Ukraine. Have a wonderful uh, weekend today. That view is endorsed by everyone on BTS. This is a very, this is a very interesting time to be alive a lot of things happening in the world but also movies are things that we used to get inspired by so i think it is important to find out what exactly is going on in the cinemas today today is oscar day and with us we have kino corner slush giovanni penicietti with the fez on and we are going to have Catherine brodsky joining us as well to talk about why she is not really that much into movies anymore i mean that really does seem to be the uh thing on a lot of people's minds who i've talked to where they don't even want to reach out and see if anything good is on anymore they just accept the fact that everything is crap there's nothing to be found of quality coming out of uh coming out of the hollywood machine or even like the art film machine I want to prove them wrong, and that's why I have with us these uh, wonderful panelists. Or maybe I'll prove them right. Who knows? But, uh, Gio, you had a little intro about Kino Corner as well, so go for it, brother. Oh, I just wanted to say um, it's it's a pleasure. Um, I remember a year ago, I think, or two years. Yeah, a year ago, someone uh, floated your channel. You said, Gio, you have to watch Kino Corner. And I sort of... Uh, pissed around a little bit but then as soon as i started watching i think the first video i watched was actually the sallow video <laughs> of course because <laughs> i'm a big fan of italian art house and art house in general but i think uh, in general kino corner what you do is you are um unafraid i think to be a movie like what well, what is a cinema channel there's a lot of shameless grifters out there oh, yeah. who sort of are very cheap in their content who have a thing who sort of um, say, uh, well, I mean, movie critics in general have always, as you pointed out recently, have always sort of been a foil for the big studios. But I think what you're doing is very interesting because you're willing to go down avenues of thought that um, other ones perhaps haven't really uh, embraced for a variety of political and cultural reasons. Uh, and I think that what you're doing is something very comprehensive and you really try to, instead of, I would say, become um, my good friend Matthew Vistout. He's a very good artist. He he said that a uh, what movie, what a cinema, not cinema, but what uh, music reviewers do, like uh, Mr. Fantano, is that they basically describe sounds in a variety yeah. of ways. A lot of movie reviewers describe cinema cinematographic motifs in very linear ways. But what you are doing is that you're trying to get somewhere and to get to a place that is behind the actual context of what is on the celluloid itself. Mm -hmm. And I think that your appreciation of art house and your willingness to explore um, trains of thought that are not, uh, especially among like, you know, movie reviewers and video game reviewers, uh, very unorthodox and almost uh, quote unquote cancel worthy. I mean, that's <laughs> such a terrible term, such a shallow term. But uh, yeah. for example, no, no, but, well, yeah, well, well, what is the yeah. cancel canceling thing? Because I haven't really seen anything that, at least to my sensibilities, would be cancel worthy. But Kino, Corner, well, what would you I, say I, it is? Well, well, well we got we got to get uh, Kino else. in here. Yeah. I will say I will say something is that uh, I like uh, sort of embracing the edginess of a lot of art house films, and I am pretty shameless in the fact that I 
love movies like Sallow or Antichrist or mm. Irreversible or <laughs> The House that Jack Built and talk and, you know, and with my Antichrist video too, I mean, people still believe it's an incredibly misogynistic film. I don't believe that. And uh, I don't think that that's the case, but that, you know, and in my own video, I, I had the uh, the clip of Lars von Trier saying that he understood Hitler. And then I go to then uh, defend Lars von Trier. <laughs> like, I mean, it was a, like, it's obviously well, what did a joke. He mean, what, did, what did he mean by that? I remember so, that uh, situation. Yeah. But, he uh, became persona non grata at the Cannes Film Festival after he said that in his press conference for uh, Melancholia. However, uh, it, he was saying it in a joking way, but he was making a point that I thought was actually a good point to make. And I don't think should have been cancel worthy. He did get sort of canceled. What he was saying is that he could understand him as a person. And but that is the job of a director, right, is to understand the person, no matter how evil they are. And that's what he's saying, no matter how evil he was, no matter the bad deeds he did. He said, I can I can see him sitting in the bunker in 1945 and I can I can get into his head. I don't know why that was cancel worthy, considering that one of the greatest movies about World War Two downfall is really just about that. You know, Bruno Gans playing as as Hitler. I mean, it really gets into the head and the psyche and. I don't I don't think that we should be scared to get into the psyche of people like that on in cinema. I mean, you know, Sallow definitely does that gets mm. to the psyche of Jeffrey Epstein. Well, uh, but... Catherine, <laughs> I'm curious what you think. Uh, do you uh, agree with that? I don't I don't know how familiar you are with Lars von Trier. Yeah, well, I, you know what, I agree with the general sentiment, because I think, um, you know, I, I actually studied acting a, a long time ago. Um, and you know, one thing that you really learn is that you do get inside of people's heads. And sometimes these people are, you know, quote unquote, bad people, and you still have to figure out, okay, how do you like that person? So mm -hmm. like, an actor would actually be in, and, and a filmmaker and a writer would be sort of all in this position where they are, that's their job. And that's their craft and talent is to understand what goes on in somebody's mind. And you know what, like, yeah, I'm gonna, you know, Hitler, while um, <laughs> we can all agree, not, not, a, not a lovely man, but like, okay, but you know what, he was probably nice to certain people. He was nice to, to dogs. I've been watching videos of Putin visiting, um, you know, kids in the, in the camp make a wish foundation type thing. And he seems very sweet with them. That doesn't make him a good person. Mm -hmm. but like it, people are multi-layered and it's really like, what, why do you even watch film or TV? You know, you, you kind of watch to understand this human psyche more and how we are all like very susceptible to some of these things too. Mm. I mean, yeah. we're not all Hitler, but <laughs> thank God. Yeah, now, I, I, I want to make sure that both Kino Corner and Slush get a chance to respond to the main topic. I want to make sure that we keep this uh, going in a certain road here, oh, for sure. which is uh, which is about whether this perception that I think Catherine is feeling, and I'm also feeling to a certain extent, of the old school, you know, Kubrick, taxi driver, you know, this kind of Kino energy is something that we're only getting a mere fragment of, or all the, all the people are dying off, the ones who have this energy, and we're just going to be left with a bunch of crap. I don't know, like, Catherine, I don't want to speak for you, but what is your general sentiment when it comes to the kind of, you know, the kind of 
repelling force you feel when it comes to seeing any movies today. And everybody subscribe, by the way. All the Kino people, all the slush people, subscribe right now. Anyway, Catherine. Yeah, I mean, I think about this quite a bit because there is a, a huge level of self-censorship amongst artists, amongst writers. And I've talked to a lot of filmmakers and directors and, and, and writers who are who created some of these movies, actually. Um, and they said, a lot of them have actually said, like, I don't think I would get this done today. Like, either because it would just wouldn't make it through the studio system because it's not, you know, the characters aren't all pretty and tidy or because they they would just be too afraid to put that down on paper um and so some some of these great works that have changed people's lives or have influenced people's lives just wouldn't be made today and so we're seeing like in the studio system it's it's very much about you know money i think financial and, and safety yeah. So they know they can, like, if they make a comic book movie, they know they can sell it and they know they can sell it internationally. And I think that plays a big role. And then uh, with riskier films, I mean, I think people are just much more afraid of of, of the wrong, wrong thing. But if you look back at some of the greatest movies, I mean, these characters were not always wonderful people, right? It didn't make them either all all bad and all villains but like people are complicated and and it's like you can't reflect that anymore and you can't reflect multiple points of view so i think a lot of people are feeling like that edge um that free expression that freedom to play it's gone and you see that also in um writers rooms i've been told that um you know in, in certain writers rooms the whole idea is that you should be just free right to say anything yeah. you want so they keep play and build on and now that's sort of gone because there would be like this one person in the room who is going to report you. <laughs> and so everyone else just, okay, that thought that I have, that random thought, which may be very stupid, which may be offensive, but mm -hmm. sometimes it's necessary to build into something else. Yeah. doesn't happen. Mm. And the Kino Corner, do you agree with Catherine? What's your take? Yeah, I agree. And I can speak from experience too. I remember, um, so I used to work as a script doctor and I remember we had one script that did really well on the blacklist years ago and it got to Paramount optioned it. Um, and it was kind of working its way up through Paramount. And this is, this is other, how the studio system works. I, I learned about how the studio system works with scripts with this particular, this particular one, because this one got all the way to the top. Basically it's like, it goes to the intern, right? The intern says, all right, you got to make this change, this change, because the guy above me is going to want that change. So then you do that, you know, and it goes to the guy above them. And then the guy says, all right, now if it's going to go to the next person, you're going to have to do this change. So it's like it goes through this process where they just neuter the whole thing. I remember that one of the notes that we got was there was one or two uses of the word uh, bitch in the script. And they said, look, the paramount lady that's going to give the okay is a big time feminist and she will throw it in the trash if she sees the word bitch in the script. And I'm like, too much uh, self-reflection there. I, I'm like, what? I, I, I'm, you know, and I'm thinking that's not even like that bad. Like that uh, th you can say bitch in a PG movie, you know, it's like, and the way that it was used in the script was in like a, it was like in a joking way. It wasn't like in an offensive way or anything like that. And besides, I mean, even if it was in an offensive way, I don't think that that should be something that makes you just like one word to throw it away. It's like, this is, 
and and it was at that point i was like we're in this sort of at least that's how i felt um we're in this sort of almost like new haze code era but at least with the haze code there was like a list here's a list of things that you can't have and here you know whatever with this it's not really a list because it's ever changing depending upon whatever the political social climate of the time is uh but I don't know. A lot of the people that I met, I, I got really disillusioned with the entire writer system because most of them are pretty uh, um, just they don't think about it, it, They don't want to shake anything. They don't want to rock the boat. Um, well, well in, in relation to this, there was a movie review that you did of the Batman, which recently came out. And the yeah. only thing that I saw before your review was that particular section about the white cis has patriarchy that Catwoman oh, yeah. was complaining about. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, a lot of the impressions that I got from people who watched the movie was that, no, this is actually like a good movie. And it's the closest that would come to having like this art house kino feel. So uh, yeah. Slush, Slush, you've seen this movie too? I have, yeah. So let's go to Slush. I'm curious, like, what you think, uh, and then Kino Corner as well, but what do you think is the uh, category you would put something like Batman in? Does it come close to any of the old-school, gritty New York taxi driver type things, or is it just, like, water in the desert? Like, this is the best we can get, so we might as well just uh, appreciate it. I mean, I don't know if I would call the movie, like, Art House or anything like that, but it was definitely unique for a superhero movie because it was like more of a noir detective movie than yeah. it was like an action movie even though it was full of action uh and I, I don't know like uh i thought they did a really good job with it and like in general i feel like this era that we live in right now is temporary i maybe i'm being optimistic but i have a feeling that like this sort of climate where we're constantly like neutering our projects like that like how Kino just described is is not going to be here to stay and I think that like the desire to make good films is very much still alive and you can see that in like independent films and stuff like that and even um you know there's people have found ways to make good movies that are like mainstream if you look at like I mean you can argue how good of a movie it is but if you look at Joker for example you know, it's not your conventional, uh, like, comic book movie. It's obviously, like, hugely inspired by Taxi Driver. But he, he found a, basically found a way to, like, make a good movie about a, a character that, uh, you know, is sort of like... People wouldn't want it to, to make movies about characters like that these days. And he did it by making it a comic book movie. So I feel like people are just going to find creative ways to do it right now. And then eventually we'll sort of bypass this whole oh. era. There's creative, but then there's creative with a capital C. For example, I know I don't want to compare superhero movies to, uh, you know, like Stanley Kubrick or Kurosawa, but my question to uh, everyone, especially Kino, is do you think that anything today does come close to that level? Why is it that at least somebody like myself identifies so much with that particular level and sees it as being like this very high thing that so few movies today go to? Is this a bias on my part or is it actually something, uh, something real? I think, okay, so a few things. I think there's a recency bias, but I also think that um, what at least I'm seeing in movies right now and this is, and honestly, I think that a lot of the complaints that we have about movies right now all comes down to the gutting of the mid-budget movie. We're seeing movies that like are a million, hundred million dollars to two hundred million dollars, right? Mm -hmm. These are the big tent poles. 
They're putting more and more money into these tent poles. You're getting inflated budgets. I mean, they don't need to like $200 million is, is unnecessary. And it's like, they spent $200 million on Spider-Man no way home. And it still sucked. And you know, and it still looked like trash. Yeah. It's like everyone's all making... the Spider-Man in there. It's like, oh. <laughs> Dad, Spider-Man. Oh my oh. gosh. That movie was horrible. Uh, that wasn't quite as bad as house of Gucci, but it was still bad. And, and, but then you're seeing on the other side, you're seeing movies that are made for about one to 10 million. So on the, like the lower budget end, that's a lot of a 24 stuff. Lighthouse was made, I think for 4 million, the witch for 3 million. Um, you know, they're made for uh, like get out, even though I didn't care for get out. I think that was only a $5 million budget. That's kind of the Jason Blum, the Blum house. Uh, yeah. It's like 5 million or below, like, and they're going to get that, their money back. So I'm seeing like, uh, a bigger gap where we're not seeing these uh, 30 to $40 million movies that used to be pretty prevalent um, that were the prestige pictures. We get a few prestige pictures at the end of each year, basically to compete for the Oscars. But even some of the prestige pictures, if we're going to look at you know this year's Oscars, I mean, uh, West Side Story, even though I really liked it, had a budget of like $100 million. I mean, uh, they are pretty, you know, Dune, is up for the best picture and that was a huge budget you know movie um so even some of the prestige pictures fall into this tent pole now we're not seeing as much mid-budget but i think that there is a bit of a recency bias because the movies that we we remember from the past are all the ones that have uh had staying power and um you know if you go back to the 40s they were making so many more movies in each year than we're making each year i mean like exponentially more movies were made per year back during the classic studio system and i gotta tell you a lot of them were kind of terrible um and even going in the 60s 70s 80s still a lot of movies were made i would say that uh what we've kind of encountered with this whole like uh cape shit sort of <laughs> uh culture is almost a uh, uh rhymes with what was happening in the 80s with this like hyper consumerist uh media entertainment um, but what happens is that, uh, what happened at the end of the eighties is this sort of independent resurgence, you know, when you had movies like Slacker, Clerks, Metropolitan, Sex, Lies, and Videotape, uh, mm -hmm. and yeah. because people yeah. got so tired of this kind of watered down, uh, movies that were basically just made for, you know, consumption and really didn't have much to them. Uh, I think we're at a similar breaking point and usually when things feel this way in film, like the film industry has been in the same spot several times in the past. You know, we had it when uh, TV, we had it when uh, sound was introduced, you know, people thought cinema was going to die. They're like, how are they going to, you know, er everyone wants sound now. How are they going to do it? Well, they did it. TV was introduced. How are they going to compete with TV? Well, they did it. They introduced uh, color. They introduced, well, they had color before it, but they started shooting stuff in widescreen, anamorphic, cinemascope, uh, VistaVision. IMAX was created, you know, like a, de well, a decade later, but that's using that technology from the 50s. And, um, you know, and then as a studio system falls apart, what's going to happen? Well, they have all the young people in the 60s come in and creates new Hollywood. Um, and then, you know, again, it kind of this gets to this breaking point. New Hollywood got to its own breaking point, which led to the 80s and this sort of hyper, you know, this sort of like uh, making Spielberg. action figures. Spielberg, mm -hmm. George Lucas, all this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Make movies mm -hmm. that you can sell merchandise with. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and then kind, that kind of similar to uh, Tarantino in a way, who with Pulp Fiction, you know, he ended up becoming the uh, new Hollywood, but the reigning champion of that, even if he started from more of an indie direction. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So you see, and then in the early 90s, late 80s, you know, it gets to its own breaking point. And you see all these independent directors come out, like Richard Linklater, Steven Soderbergh, Tarantino, uh, I mean, uh, the Coen brothers, you know, mm-hmm. they end up becoming the Adam new. Adam yeah. Yeah, they uh, with Stillman as well. Uh, they end up becoming the new sort of Wes Anderson too. He was in this movement. Um, they become the new sort of uh, gold, you know, standard bearers of cinema. And now I just feel like we're coming to the end of that particular era. It's gone on for pretty long, and well, maybe that era kind of it came to an end when Kevin uh, Feige. I don't know how to say the Mar- the Marvel guy. <laughs> um, you know, and but you can feel it. You can feel it, and not, nothing ever really lasts. For, people think that stuff is going to last forever. It never lasts forever. Uh, Tastes change, uh, and I think that things are being sped up now with the internet and with people who can uh, who can share. Because still, great movies are being made. Uh, a lot of great movies are are being made. I uh, um, obviously the Lighthouse, but even from the last. The last year, um, the French Dispatch, the worst person in the world, uh, both fantastic films. Um, GTA's film is good too. Yeah, I mean, Uncut Gems, good time. Like you have the Safdie brothers, and the good thing about the internet is that we can share these movies with people, and they can, you know, somebody can make a film in Bhutan, which I just watched uh, that Oscar-nominated film, Lunana, Yak in the Classroom. It's pretty good, but it's crazy. It's insane, actually, to think that there's this little movie made in the mountains in Bhutan that I could bring up on Amazon Prime and, just, and watch for three bucks. And that's kind of what the Internet has. And I think that we're going to get a more de- Well, at least what I'm hoping for is a more decentralized uh, system of entertainment, of filmmaking. Mm. Yeah, and I the- think. Oh, go ahead. No, no, go for it. No, I think that what's interesting is film is always a complicated medium uh, for the arteur in general because it specifically lacks like an aura of like the original creator. There's so much mediating steps between a vision of a film and how a film is produced. Mm-hmm. But it is, but that's like a time immemorial struggle. It's it's like yeah. what um what Roland Barthes said how in a way cinema op- opened up what he called. Um, a cinematic consciousness as opposed to the unconscious mm. where it's but is like it, now... it, it, is it similar in a way to people who guide their uh who use their twitter personality as opposed to being part of any kind of movement like right wing left wing you know is no is no it's more just that... the actual creation of a film is so hard to have explicit direct control over there's so mm. many variables and moving parts. But you it's still kind like... of feel it, though. Like, you feel if yeah. a movie is yeah. a Kubrick movie yeah. or if it's a Kurosawa movie. So what is oh, it yeah. about that? Like, how are they able to generate this kind of association with themselves, even if they have, like, all well, I... these people working on it? I got. I have an answer for that. Yeah, right. yeah, go ahead, go ahead. yeah, so the answer for that is part of direction, part of being a director isn't just being on set and saying, I want this, I want this, I want to get this shot, I want to get that shot, I want the lighting to look like this, I want you to perform like this. Part of the director is who they hire. You hire people because you know what they're going to bring to your set. You know that they are going to bring this element. They're going to bring their own personality to your set. So you hire people who you know fit into your vision. So even though it's a, so this is kind of where 
I guess, auteur theory sort of, this is the idea behind it because at the end of the day, the director hired the person because mm. the director wanted that person to bring that personality, bring their ideas because he knows or she knows how this person operates and says that person can exist in my world. That is why I'm mm. bringing this person in. That is direction in itself. I mean, a lot of like, there's a saying that like most of directing is casting. Mm. And it's true. I would say that's, that's true. That's well, to a, to a certain point, I mean, some of us, Love to also just like mm. be like I want to hold the camera and like. Well, it's kind of uh, similar yeah. again, I think, to online communities where the people that you surround yourself by, it's like they reinforce you, reinforce them. But uh, to uh, Catherine, no, no, I think. Oh, well, uh, real real quick though, I wanted to ask Catherine the following. I think, unless I'm mistaken, that you were working on Man in the High Castle, or there was some involvement you had with Man in the High Castle. Am yeah, I? I just... No, no, you're correct. I worked on Man in the High Castle. All right, so what was your experience then in terms of how that whole thing was set up, the people who were around there? Uh, was it an auteur type of uh, production or was it more of like by committee? Oh, uh, I mean, I don't, I mean, at the studio level, I'm not sure, but I know that like on the executive producer, so I was, I was a unit publicist on, on the show, just to clarify, uh, for a couple of seasons. And that show was, you know, not a tour, I would not say that. It had a, it was a very, very good crew, very, a lot of world building. The detail that they went to was quite extreme. Like you can pick up a magazine and all the articles were written by the art department, for example. So the actor really felt like they were in this, in this real world. Um, it was a detail that I haven't seen anywhere else to that, to that extent. I think what the, you know, the, the executive producers and the, the people who had sort of the vision. Um, I, I mean, it was definitely a studio production in many ways, but at the same time, there were like um, certain things that were important for them. Specifically, you know, kind of going back to Hitler. <laughs> um, what I thought was interesting in a conversation that I had with uh, one of the showrunners was, you know, some people didn't like that Hitler was humanized in that show you know he was kind of shown as a human and the reason that that was actually important to do was because it showed people that like people kind of envision somebody like hitler as this like fanatical crazy guy well and of course we would never follow someone like that but he was actually probably quite charismatic and people liked listening to his speeches and it was very appealing. People doesn't come in this like obvious form. He was a sensitive man. If he was alive today, he'd listen to a <laughs> Depeche Mode, yeah, the Cure of the Smiths. Sorry, you know, it's a terrible yeah. song I just cited. Don't worry about it. I, I, think, people, I think people don't like uh, people like Hitler being humanized because it makes them have to uh, sort of uh, interrogate themselves about whether right. they could be a follower of his or whether they have the potential to be someone like him. Right. But how important is that? Because yeah. you, you should be interrogating that because if you don't do that, when somebody like that does show up, you're more likely to follow because you're not going to recognize that. And you're not going to recognize your, um, ability to do that, uh, to, to be the, such a follower in yourself. And we see things, I mean, none of these things in history happen like 
you know, it's not usually an overnight thing. It's like little things, little here and there. And maybe you think that the leader is kind of cute and funny and charismatic and good with yeah, animals. Where's where's a nice hat, you know? <laughs> where's a nice hat? Yes, and uh, and paints really nice, uh, you know, paintings. And so over time, you're like, well, this guy. And then and then he starts, you know, sharing some of these like little nuggets of extreme points of views, and you're like, well. Maybe, and that's why. So, I mean, you have to like understand people, <laughs> right? That reminds yeah. me of how, like there was a big controversy a while back when, because you know how Jordan Peterson is always like in controversy, and there was a clip of him on the H three podcast where he was talking about how normal people end up becoming like violent Nazis or whatever back in World War Two Germany, and he was basically explaining the process of how like someone can go from being like a regular person. Who you, who you think is a good person and get slowly nudged with like an open door policy in, or like foot in the door type of thing into becoming someone that does terrible things. And he got into a lot of shit for that. And I think that it's like exactly the same thing that we're talking about here where people don't like the idea of humanizing Hitler. And I think that what Kino said about like not wanting to interrogate, uh, you know, them, yourself, people not wanting to interrogate themselves is it really is uh, at the the foundation or the heart of why uh, we ha we see like this sort of black and white approach in social culture these days where people sort of just are quick to lump anything into good or bad and act like there is no gray area, even though in reality, you know, most things are in a gray area. Uh, and I think that that comes from a lack of wanting to uh, like deconstruct yourself, I guess you could say, mm -hmm. just like really just uncomfortable. But that yeah. brings up another issue, which is because we have the internet and because we have a lot of Zoomers who aren't really cinephiles from what I can tell. I mean, I could be wrong here, but a lot of them seems to spend a lot more time online creating their own things in Minecraft. And that's, you know, there could be a lot of creative energy there. But the other problem is that if they are hooked up to this machine without that much nuance, do you notice like, and this is for everybody, do you notice that the next generation isn't really caring that much about cinema or anything related to authorship, and they're just like on a whole different spectrum right now and what that means well, for I the think, future movies. Yeah, but well, I think what I was trying to say before is that when it comes specifically to the aura of a film, um, nowadays the biggest problem that, and it's kind of the cliche point, but it's really the commodification. It's really the culture, the sort of, the internal logic of the culture industry is such that even when uh, films arise that are very recently that are quite profound, there are still a, a litany of films that people would say are, um, you know, like pseudo profound, like Ari Aster, for instance. Like you have films that are specifically made because they sort of ring the right bells in the heads of critics. But yeah. when it comes to the vast majority of Cape Shit or whatever, they're still making a wager of these films are going to produce this much revenue and they're made for this budget. And really, and of course now you introduce foreign markets and they're very good for the lowest common denominator and so forth. Then you have a situation where the very logic of the system itself is geared away from films that are taking a gamble on because like, for example, apocalypse now was taking a huge gamble on and, you know, Francis for Coppola many times, you know, almost destroyed himself and so forth. And uh, I, I think that, it's really the logic itself. And also it's the fact that uh, streaming services have in some ways done a number on the exclusivity of actual Kino cinema, where 
movies are seen as sort of the same because you can view them on a streaming service and you can sort of very easily acquire cinema. And that does something to the effect of exclusivity on the part of the viewer, right? I mean, when you talk about these great films of the past that are sort of mid-range budget, but they have a huge impact, um, my some of my favorite films are very incredibly low budget, like Canadian indie films that are quite maudlin and quiet and don't really particularly go anywhere. They're usually in rural settings. But, you know, that's for people that are, I guess, you know, have a particular proclivities. But when it comes to like nowadays, even films that are highly praised by critics, I mean, there's still huge considerations of what is marketable and what is expedient, right? Mm. And it's it's the way people even view them, the way that we consume things in general. It's not, there's no effort in actually going out and seeking an actual high quality cinematic mm. experience. Well that, well, that also kind of goes back. Yes, okay, right. go, go for the counterpoint. But I, I am also curious this. about the whole, the Zoomer question. I think those two tie in together though. So let's see. So we have to I'm have seeing, a final solution to the Zoomer question. <laughs> I'm seeing some people in the chat saying how there are plenty of Zoomer cinephiles. And according to my analytics, that's true. Um, <laughs> a lot of my, I mean, most of my audience is between 18 and 25. So that would put them in the Zoomer category. I myself... I'm on that cusp. I'm 27, so 94. That's kind of in between, you know, um, in between Zoomers and Millennials. But uh, I think, yeah, so as far as like big time cinephiles, it's always been a little bit of a niche audience. And if we go back in history, we didn't really even think about movies as art until uh, the French New Wave, until uh, Calle du Cinema. You know, mm -hmm. uh, it, it was seen actually unanimously voted by the Supreme Court in something like 1915, 1916 as a business, pure and simple. Uh, so it wasn't even protected by free speech until the 50s. It was an Italian film that uh, put that into question and that got overturned. So it, we've only really seen it, you know, in the in the mass culture as an art form for about 70 years, which makes it a very, very early or very young art form. And when you talk about novels, when you talk about music, um, you know, they've been going on for much longer. And uh, as far as like streaming services, I have my own problems with streaming services, but I do like some of this. Okay, so the things that I like about streaming services is that when you tell somebody you need to watch this movie like this movie is fantastic it's going to change your life it used to be that you would have to wait until the cinema around you showed it because home video didn't exist in the 70s you had to wait and they had to go see it there and then you would see it one time and great it's a it's an experience in the cinema i love watching films there but I mean, most people, you're, they're not going to find the time or you just wouldn't watch movies. You, you would have a whole bunch of films you couldn't see because you didn't have the resources to it. But now everyone can become a cinephile. Um, all you need is, I, would, I wouldn't say Netflix account, but HBO Max or Criterion channel. And <laughs> then you can become a, <laughs> a cinephile. Uh, mm. But the thing that uh, Netflix is... <laughs> The no, that's what? a disaster. The democratization of art has been absolutely <laughs> disaster for the human race. No, I may actually agree with Gio on this kind. I'm curious what you guys think. But but, but I, there's a okay. second point to yes. this. There's go a second, the second point. point. Yes. It's the bad side of this. Right? Ah, there we go. So I'm I'm balancing it out. Uh, 
is that how Netflix, how Hulu, Amazon Prime, how <coughs> they make these films is that they want to keep you on their streaming services. So how they put the films on the streaming services and how they make the films is that they treat the films like content. And that mm. is, for me, that is a big problem is that it's like people say, why did why does Netflix make uh, the kissing booth two and three and tall girl two? Why are they coming out with these terrible movies? Why do they keep putting out terrible movies? And it's like, because people are watching them because people go and they see 13 reasons why and Netflix can guess it's probably a teenager or something like that. They want to put out another shitty teenager film that 13, 14 year old girls are going to watch. So they put out tall <laughs> oh, girl. No. And then, and then what happens is then YouTubers then make a lot of money by making all these videos going, guys, tall girl is so bad. It's so bad. <laughs> ah. uh, don't watch it. And then that True. just leads more people to Netflix to watch it. The, the complaining about it is actually it's marketing and Netflix knows it that well, i mean kind of like clickbait articles too. yeah it's not so different mm -hmm. from exactly that. The, the well like that was yeah. like the anti-sgw's back in the day it was like look at what this like five like 10 different channels doing the same video on the same feminist in their basement mm -hmm. talking yeah. about it it's like the they're same, like they're, they're like the yeah, cops who arrest equivalent yeah. they're like the cops who arrest the drug dealers but never the kingpin so that there's more drug deals to be had and more you know, more money to be made for the police. There's a show yeah. about that on Netflix, actually. There we oh. go. It all comes full circle. <laughs> yeah, yeah, even even like stuff that you can't get that was previously geography locked. Like mm -hmm. uh, that, that I could There's see There's still the value plenty of that, yeah. though. There's still plenty of that. That and We haven't really gotten to a point where it's, it's perfect. As I said, uh, a film that I watched back in college when I was living in Ireland was a film called Landscape in the Mist. By Theodore Sangalopoulos uh, blew me away. I wanted, and after I moved back to the States, I wanted to find more of his films. I couldn't. You can't find them in the States, not even online. I mean, mm. of course, there's certain sites you can go to to get them, but I mean, like legally, you know, <laughs> you can't find more. them. There the servers are in Latvia or wherever. Yeah. 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 But this is a good thing because, um, I mean, it, it, like on Netflix, I've noticed that they are pushing out more foreign content because if they're already investing in it and people are interested enough and all they have to do is put on subtitles or maybe dub it, like that's an expensive way for them to sort of increase their catalog. And therefore, people are seeing, you know, content from yeah. other countries, which I just called it content, by the way. <laughs> and then, you know, the other thing is like, prestige, um, you know, which was something that motivated studios to make sort of movies that weren't motivated by profit. It was about like, let's create that Oscar bait movie that's just a good movie that's going to get critical acclaim, which is why like, you know, Miramax and all that. I mean, that that was sort of their their model in many ways. And Ever it, since Harvey Weinstein left. Yeah. Mm -hmm. right, well, it <laughs> We've been on a downward spiral since Harvey Weinstein <laughs> left. But it does. Unfortunately, it, yeah. <laughs> But it does promote, it promoted that, you know, you were talking earlier about that budget, that sweet spot where it wasn't like the 100 million, it was like the 20 to 30, mm -hmm. you know, 40 million um, movies. It's big enough that you can get a big star and have high quality production values, but it's like more story focused. Yeah. So like Netflix, because now they're sort of a contender in this whole Oscar thing and they seem to care about winning them, um, they have invested in certain movies where they haven't when they first began. So I kind of see that as a, as a positive move. And if Amazon and Netflix are competing and Apple's now sort of a contender too, 
you know, their content is, is getting better. That's yeah, not I a bad thing. Yeah. yeah, but do people it's, care about the Oscars anymore, though? Hey, yeah. look, well, I'm this is the tonight. Oscars. Uh, yeah, so you better I'm care stre- about the Oscar. You better check out. I care about out. it very much. I care and about then, it very much. And then oh, after good. watching Kino Corner stream, what you should do is you should pay money to watch the uh, Tim Heidecker. Uh, you know, the On Cinema? I don't know if you're oh, familiar with the... On Cinema at the Cinema. Yes. It's yeah. one of my favorite no, universes. No, no, do not give yes. Tim Heidecker yes. anything. Five bags Fuck of popcorn. No. Five bags of Yeah, I want to get some popcorn. But, give uh, Sam Hyde your money over Tim Heidecker. <laughs> I know, Sam's Hyde kind of overrated. I like Tim Heidecker more. Oh, 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 oh I'm not supposed oh. to say that. But anyway. You aren't supposed to say that, dude. I am not supposed to. I, I don't give a fuck anymore. Anyway. I'm going to at him, and he's going <laughs> to bite you in the ring, dude. Hassan oh, turned man. him down. No, I had, a, I, I had Charles Carroll on uh, BTR uh, a couple of years ago. Anyway. He, he uh, challenged um, <coughs> Hassan Piker to a fight, I think, recently. Yeah, yeah. Hassan was there. Well, he also challenged Idubs to, uh, what was it, to, uh, be- not bench press, had, to uh, well, squat, did spar a little bit. squat <laughs> 200 uh, pounds. Below parallel. Below parallel, exactly. Yeah. So yeah. anyway, <laughs> Catherine, I want to get back to the subject here. I want to steer this ship back in the right direction. So yeah. other than the things that you mentioned with this uh, censorship, what are the other reasons why you were totally tuning out? You didn't even watch In the Name of the Dog. You didn't even watch yeah. In the Name of the Dog, Catherine. What's wrong with you? And I don't think it's, yeah, I know. And that was the only one that I was like kind of interested in and only because it had dog in the title of it. <laughs> so, um, I, I mean, I'm still, there's still films that I kind of want to watch that I, that I should, but I think a lot of it for me was also about the experience of going to the cinema or having a community. Like I worked in film, so I was hearing about films all the time. I was going, I usually would go to like the Toronto Film Festival and that's where I would sort of see most of the films for the year. And, and I get bragging rights that I saw them early. And uh, and I think that environment for me was like a, an essential part. And then of course, with the pandemic, everything got shut down and I have not been to a movie theater and this whole time. And so that kind of took away a lot of my love for going to the movies and seeing films. And then and then I got used to the sort of snippet format of TV shows, which have gotten so much better and really interesting. Um, I watch a combination of high, like, uh, like high level sort of TV shows and very lowbrow to like trash TV as I call it. And I kind of enjoy both. And and I think my mind has almost been reprogrammed to watch things in these, even though I like I'll watch one season from start to finish in a marathon very often but something about a movie and sitting through a movie is just like not appealing in the same way and i'm also not seeing things like because the 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 community aspect of it isn't there for me so i'm not hearing about these films like i don't even know what's nominated for the oscars and i was a film writer for you know over 10 years Catherine, i have a challenge for you okay this is this is going to put your mind your, your brain back on track, okay, to be okay. able to watch films. Go to the cinema and watch Satan Tango by Belatar in one sitting. And that'll, 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 how long is it? <laughs> is it like 10 hours long? Well, close, seven and a half. Oh, God. Well, oh, that's like Nymphomaniac. <laughs> yeah, that's I actually, that was, that was a harrowing watch. Um, being I could probably do it in a movie theater. <laughs> I have a hard time doing it at home. Well, you just about, like, people, people like, or about you feeling like you're like reprogrammed to watch TV shows. I feel like that's 
like the sentiment of like everyone I know now where yeah. anytime I suggest, hey, let's watch this movie, 99% of my friends will be like, oh, a movie? I don't want to sit through a movie. But like if it's a TV show, like we can watch like five hours in a row and it doesn't matter for some reason. It's, yeah. I think it's because in a movie, they think of it in bigger chunks, right? So you're yeah. like, oh, it's two hours. But in a TV show, it's like, oh, it's only 45 minutes, 50 minutes. But then they'll watch five hours of that. But yeah. they think, but a movie's oh. movie's a self-contained unit as well. I yeah, a movie's a self-contained thing. And it's yeah. not like at the 45-minute mark in a movie, you're going to get some cliffhanger that's going to... I mean, the Netflix films or Netflix shows are all like kind of something, sort of something happens. And then like at that 50-minute mark, they give you the cliffhanger for the next one that makes you go... I got to watch the next episode. And then you kind of get 50 minutes of like, eh, something sort of happens and whatever. And then it's a cliffhanger. Well, and like, I think also for me, I find because TV has a lot more room for character development. So it's really character driven and film is more like visual story. I mean, characters obviously play a role too, but depends on the movie too. Some some movies, it's not really about the characters. And so I think you develop more of an intimate relationship when you're at your home, you're having this relationship with these TV characters, if you like them. And so you're more prone to sort of continue living in their world and, and staying with them. So I think there's something to that as well, psychologically. Mm. What, what about, yeah. Like, yeah. think of like the idea that like cinema isn't on the downswing, but it's just migrating to, to television or to TV. Series. I don't think it's migrating to TV. No? Uh, I don't think it's, <laughs> I don't think it's, I don't think it's migrating to TV. I, I think that, you know, they have separate things. I think what's just happening now is that movies that would be like four hours long are being turned into miniseries. But yeah. I don't think that yeah. movies are necessarily migrating to TV because I think that a lot of filmmakers would, in a lot of cases, I, I know people that really want to make TV and I know people that really want to make movies. I don't know many people that want to make TV but also want to make movies. You know, it mm-hmm. seems to get a different... Uh, I don't want to say audience, but different groups of people on the behind the scenes thing that I've it's at least met and talked to. Different experience making because, like, it's very the, different. Yeah, and, and you can and you can make different things. Ex- and you can make different things yeah. too, because like I I you know I sort of ask myself this about TV quite often, but like, how would you like could Tarkovsky's Mirror be a TV show? It's like no, mm-hmm. you couldn't do that no. on what TV. Happened? Uh, there's so much that you can do on like TV to me. I mean, it feels more character focused, but it's much less visually interesting. Usually uh, a lot of times there's a lot of fluff. That's why I don't like watching. T- there are some TV shows I like, mm-hmm. but even in the shows that I really love, like Breaking Bad, there's still quite a lot of fluff. Yeah, but um, it's different. I mean, you are you are starting to get more of a cinematic experience, but the big difference between film and TV, so the director in a film really can, needs the auteur, right? Yeah, and Whereas it's the showrunner in a TV. The showrunner. So if you come in to direct, you're, you're, you're not directing usually multiple episodes or you're alternating. So it's a completely different experience and you're much yeah. moving at a different pace as well. Yeah, but do you want a cinematic experience while you're looking at a TV show? I think that's... People generally want more of a character-driven thing. Mm. Like yeah. it's not, 
Well, you know, also, like, also in terms of the audience today, I know that uh, Kino, you were talking about how the majority of your audience is in the uh, Zoomer generation. Mm-hmm. But how much of your audience, you know, and you have definitely a sizable audience. Don't get me wrong. But in terms of the amount of Zoomers that are doing other things, how many are the film watchers in comparison to the previous generations? So that's more of kind of what I'm trying to. I would find say out Zoomers here. are more open than thus millennials. Like we're. I just think millennials are done as a generation. That's just me, though. <laughs> yeah, I notice. Like, I mean, when you when you're thinking about like Zoomers, and especially the Zoomers who watch me, which a lot of them are in film school or they're studying film or studying, I don't know, it, it, some sort of like they're in some sort of like arts groups, you know, and something like that. Uh, so that's who I interact with when I interact oh, with my subscribers oh. most of the time. <laughs> but um, you know, they like. The, the Marvel stuff, I mean, that is kind of out of the millennial generation that was initially made. I mean, same with Harry Potter, right? right. That's like a millennial thing. Well, that's, that's why I'm not putting any of these into the category of things Zoomers are into. I like what Tim Dillon said, where he was talking about how now you have all these Minecraft uh, YouTubers out there, and they're yeah. constructing their own stories, their own uh, various yeah. situations that resonate with their audience. But... Part of me thinks that whatever story they're going to create there, I'm not sure how exactly that's going to keep up uh, to the level of the uh, Kurosawas of the world. It's not. It's well, not. And do, you, do you think it's going to, um, because certain films like Kurosawa's films, like I, I, I think that is the kind of movie you want to watch on a big screen and you want to be in a theater and you want to be in the dark. I mean, I understand we're all getting big, bigger TV screens and all that, but there's a limitation no. I don't think so. That was like an early 2000s thing, people having bigger TV screens. Yeah, I I mean, it's bigger than it was anyways. It's like not a bad TV screen, but Mm. but it's like, does that kill, you know, a lot of people are like, well, I don't want to make the effort to go out to the movie theaters and I have, and I'm paying for all this entertainment, you know, like I've got all these subscriptions. Like, do you think for certain kinds of films, especially the kind that you seem to write about, um, art house films, like, are, are they going to lose their audience just by virtue of people like just not going to the cinema? Um, well, I mean, cinemas are trying a lot of different things to uh, get people to go to the cinema. I just live like the church. Yeah, I, I live close to uh, an Alamo draft house here in Austin. And there's always a lot of people there, um, you know, but Alamo draft house has its own like perks, you know, yes. that it's like a mix of a, uh, a restaurant and uh, a cinema. They do screenings on film. And of course, here in Austin, we have the Austin Film Society that shows, I think they're going to show uh, a whole bunch of Kurosawa films on film uh, this next month. So, and people, people still go out there, you know, like uh, uh, they had a packed audience a few years ago when Linklater put on a, a, a retrospective on a uh, person who is probably my favorite, uh, French filmmaker, French director. He's in my top five of all time. Of course, that's why I made a video on him. I'm a bit of a fanboy. But, um, you know, they had a packed house. They had a packed house when he did a retrospective on Persson. It's like, who would have known that, like, for a movie like L'Argent, you know, 1983, just weird French art film that you would have a sold-out audience. So, you know, I think that people still like it. I saw 2001 A Space Odyssey in IMAX. And there was quite mm-hmm. a few people at the cinema, and that was an amazing experience. I would say, if you can see 2001 on a big screen, definitely go do it. 
Uh, and An- another not- great one, by the way, is Lawrence of Arabia. I saw that on the oh, big yeah. screen in 4K. That was mwah, the colors, amazing. See, I think what's going to happen is they're going to, and I can see that in how the cinemas are trying to market things. They're trying to create event experiences more. Yeah. So, so I think they have is, to. Yeah. Yeah. So the community thing. So, for example, I know um, in Canada, the Cineplex chain, they have, they've been really good at developing like these uh, mailing lists, and so they know, like, okay, they're going to play Bollywood film and you you mm-hmm. won't even know about it but these people will and they'll come and it will be like a sold out event so i think they're trying to do it that way and i think something that people are lacking especially in this digital age of uh, you know meta space metaverses and all that is is that sense of community so i think that's probably how they're going to uh, do this in that the theater that you mentioned in Austin. I mean, I mm-hmm. think I suspect a big part of why you have that culture in Austin. First of all, it's like this cool indie film culture, and then mm-hmm. that particular theater is known for that. And you, so you have that community, and you have that cultural practice almost of going to the theater. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this is kind of how I see movies going forward. Is that for most people, like your average person? They'd rather watch it at home because, mm. and yeah, unfortunately, but our lives are so busy. Uh, you know, gas prices are high. Like a lot of people <laughs> are going to say, like, I don't want to, I don't want to drive to the cinema. Like, you know, it's four dollars a gallon. It's it's four dollars a gallon here. It's five dollars or six dollars, depending upon where you are. I don't want to drive out there to see this are. movie. Yeah, yeah I, less likely because you might have kids too. So yeah, you might have kids. I'm actually all for. Uh, Disney putting all of their films on Disney Plus. Keep the kids out of the movie theaters. <laughs> like, and honestly, you know, that's better for the parents too. Look, a parent doesn't want to have to round up their kids and all their kids' friends, bring them to the movie theaters, and then possibly have problems or something like that. Have them at home, put on Encanto, which I didn't like, but whatever. Put on Encanto, have the kids watch it there. It's a lot easier, even though, the, but those movies are. You know they're made for like 150 million dollars those are really expensive movies but um but no but i see it as being like there's gonna be two different ways of seeing things you're people are gonna go to the to the cinemas to see spectacle films um and then they're gonna go there and then they're gonna go there for events um and you're definitely gonna have the indie sort of art house existing in that in between for you know distributors like a24 neon um magnolia to put out their uh their films and i know that those films tend to do pretty well neon films have been doing really great um if people don't know what neon is it's basically the competitor to a24 now they released uh possessor by brandon crodeberg they released parasite pig uh the worst person in the world flea all these films have done pretty well especially for the kind of kinds of films uh that they are (laughs) pig did super well uh, people were raving about it. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I see like these indie, you know, indie cinemas kind of doing this. And I know AMC now has this thing called like AMC classics, uh, or it's some sort of thing that they do where basically they'll put like one of their screens that they're not using and they'll play, uh, something from one of these, you know, distributors or Sony pictures classics is another big one that, They'll they'll play one of these like prestige movies or indie films that uh, have been doing, mm. you know, okay or whatever financially. But even then, if you go to an AMC and you at AMC, no one's really going to be watching those films. 
Um, <laughs> and uh, what do you notice as far as animation goes? Because uh, you did a recent uh, video about the Smiling Friends, which I really <laughs> dug. In fact, <laughs> I, uh, I'm in animation, and I know people who were working on that movie. And uh, some I... of them may actually be watching the stream right now. <laughs> uh, but anyway, Smiling Friends is a very interesting thing that's occurring right now. Where you have uh, people from Newgrounds. <laughs> You have people from Newgrounds who are now coming into the fore as opposed to, you could say, like the CalArts kids, you know, like the Steven yeah. Universes and all that. So I hope that this is going to create some kind of a uh, new wave of animation. But uh, what do you notice that's been going on with not just movies, but animation specifically? I don't, yeah, yeah I don't keep up with the animation as much. Uh, I watch Smiling Friends because I've been a big fan of Psychic Pebbles and Michael Cusack and like that whole crowd of people since they were on Newgrounds. I mean, I remember uh, watching David Firth's Salad Fingers when I was in middle school, you know, yeah. and everyone was sharing it, being like, this is so creepy. This is so weird. You have to watch Salad Fingers. And this is back when he first put it. I think he even had his own website for it that yeah, like had a flash pie. player. That was it a fatpie.com or? Yeah, fat yeah, pie. yeah, 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 pie, yeah. And it had to have like the uh, indent in the name or else you'd go to a porn site. <laughs> yeah yeah so i you know so i've been a fan of all these guys for a long time um but i don't keep up with i don't keep up with animation as much uh animation is a very expensive industry too um and actually the fact that they made smiling friends season one for they claim uh one episode the budget of one episode of family guy which is around two million dollars i think but and the whole show yeah the whole show but that actually puts into perspective family guy that uh 23 season or 23 episode season that's 46 million dollars i mean that's a lot of money that's a lot of money make that for a pile of crap yeah. yeah well there i think there's a lot of waste that ends up going into the animation process but <coughs> something like uh, the new grounds animators these are people who are used to being in this kind of environment where it's not really like a nine to five job. It's more of just like this. Well, it's an art. It's just something yeah. that they, they do. Should give, they should give. They should give. Adult Swim should give Emily Yukis a series. Then. Oh man, I, I, Al, well after Alfred after Al what Al ended up happening with Emily, I doubt it. But I did get high with <laughs> oh, Emily huh. back in 2016 and the uh, Newgrounds uh, Pico Day festival but anyway getting back to the uh, main point here with animation i noticed that there are people like uh, john lassiter for example who i yeah. know that there was that controversy with him the me too he got me too he hugged somebody he hugged somebody never hug never <laughs> hug anybody you have to count it has to be under five seconds yes That's well th creepy. this is also why we have uh, some actors out there like uh I'm not, oh man, this is going to be so shameful. Who was the star? Uh, Keanu Reeves. So you have Keanu Reeves who's doing this hover hand thing with all the uh, women that he's in a photo with. And you know, smart man, you know, like he's taking there precautions early on to make sure he's not going to be affected by the Me Too. But anyway, when it comes to uh, John Lasseter and others he's bringing on board from Pixar, it almost feels like with their new, what was it, Dream Maker Entertainment, something like that, with their new studio they're doing what Pixar used to do while now we have this legacy Pixar that's kind of turning into, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure they're making okay things, but no, they're, it, not. they're not. Okay. <laughs> they're not. Well, t tell me what's, what's going on. Cause see, I'm so, I'm so, um, I not grew up interested. with Pixar. 
So I, I grew up with Pixar too. Yeah, but I'm, but I'm still not interested in looking at their new things. Why? Yeah. Why am there's I not interested? Inter- there's there's nothing interesting. They lost their soul after Inside Out. Um, no, I noticed soul was good. I this is why Zoomers soul, would rather watch anime. I think that's probably yeah. Well, let's. I remember. I remember when I first got blackpilled on Pixar was uh, when The Incredibles two came out because I loved The Incredibles as a kid. And I was excited to see, because Pixar, I mean, like, in the 2000s, right, they had, like, Finding Nemo, The Incredibles, Ratatouille, WALL-E. Uh, they also, like, uh, didn't toys- put out movies that frequently back then. It was, like, once every few years. Yeah, it was once every yeah. few years. But they had just, I mean, a, that was their golden decade, right, mm-hmm. was the 2000s. And it was all original films, um, or mostly original films. Um, <laughs> and then... <laughs> They, and then they came out with Incredibles 2. I don't know what came out first, Monsters University, which was just like a, mm. a G-rated version of Animal House. I was like, what? What is this? <laughs> and, you know, there's nothing to it. There's no, like, spirit to it. You know, there's nothing There's nothing to hold on to. I just, I just feel like I'm... <laughs> I, just fe- I just felt like I was watching a watered-down Animal House. Like, I'll just watch Animal House, you know? Mm. Like, it's a better movie. Um, and then uh, Incredibles 2... And I was like, oh, I, because Brad Bird had said, he said, like, I'm not going to do Incredibles 2 unless I have a really good story for it. So I made the mistake of trusting him because Incredibles 2 was just the first incredible story, but gender swapped and it was made even stupider. And I remember watching that and coming out of it with my friend and we we're just like, that was terrible. That was awful. Why would they why would they make this? This was like a, it was a cash grab. And so I have a it, question for you. Yeah. Do you think that part of why we're seeing sort of mellow works that, that don't have real soul is because nicer people are making them? No, <laughs> no I think. No, no, I think it's meaner uh, people because the thing is, is that the, here's the thing is that the, the really nasty people, they're the ones that are like, Oh, wholesome, oh, we got to be wholesome. We got to be like make wholesome stuff and mm. whatever. Wholesome chungus, that yeah. wholesome chungus. That's the nasty people. The nice people. Uh, I'm not going to claim to be nice, but the nice people like to exercise their demons for everyone to see and be like, "Look, I'm I'm using this to exercise to to get through these these bad thoughts of mine." Right? Mm. I'm using these to like I. I assume that Lars von Trier is a pretty nice guy because of how fucked up his movies are. Yeah. I, you know, I can guarantee you that Vincey Gallo is the coolest dude on the planet because uh, of how fucked up uh, the Brown Bunny is, right? Yeah, the Brown Bunny, <laughs> though. But, but see, the critics, they pan the shit out of it, especially, you know, Ebert. But, like, mm. that movie is, again, one of those indie films, I think, is has space and has a sort of quietism to it. Um, mm. But that's that's what I mean. I think, like... There are a lot of like, like for example, the earliest Adam McGowan films are current, sort of sort of like ah, um, they have one of my favorites. Right there you here. go. Well, I happen yeah. to know that the, the person you're currently speaking on, so I can tell you if he's nice or not. Oh, really? Is he? Wait, Kevin, you yes. need to describe Vincent Gallup. Well, my <laughs> no, friend wait, said. Adam, wait, Kevin, my you friend know said Adam McGowan. Oh, yeah. Adam McGowan. Oh my God, he's like my favorite actually. I really Zada like is that. Like my favorite film. Um, he made a he made that one movie about the uh, Armenian genocide, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Wait, so is Adam nice or uh, not yeah. nice? 
I'll tell you later. In fact, patrons, if you subscribe to patreon.com slash break the rules, Catherine is going to spill the beans in private. We're going to interview him. No, I think, no, but I think that it's, well, I mean, okay, you take Lars von Trier, right? And you, you, uh, it seems that there's certain films that are at a level where they're sort of popular enough to be known as like, oh, this is a fucked up film you have to see. But then it's like the sort of, the nuances of it get washed away in this is just a fucked up film that people see to get, you know, it's like watching, uh, it's like a death match in wrestling. It's like, you know, it's like, let's see the light tubes come out. Uh, I think like that's unfortunately, I think people really in some ways don't want like, they want to feel like they're watching a profound movie without watching it. Mm. It's not like compare, compare Tarkovsky to Ari Aster, right? Like it's, <clears throat> that's like i i would call it the redditification of cinema in that you want that same cultural signifier of knowing that you're watching something of high quality without grappling with something deeper or more not necessarily disturbing mm -hmm. but something that i guess is harder to grasp well you want I mean, others to know that you are that you're one of the people yes, that, that, that you're the guy Eric reading Nick a book on the subway you want that cover to be seen by all yeah. the other people you're in the a subway. very sophisticated person but I want to go back to 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 the asshole thing because um, you know I was reading a profile a hit piece of somebody that I happen to know that I think is a nice person, but the hit piece did, suggested otherwise. Um, but you can read that hit piece and you can read it in two ways. You could be like, "This is a creative genius who's going to push me and probably make my life miserable, but we're going to create something really good together, really powerful." Or you can read it and this guy is an asshole <laughs> and I don't want to work with someone so difficult to work with. I mean, plenty and of people who've worked with me might tell you that I'm an ass I am an asshole. And I can say that maybe I was an asshole to them, but you know, sometimes I don't know, everyone kind of operates mm -hmm. differently. Uh, I don't well, think that well, like Walt, Walt Disney, Hayao Miyazaki. I bet Hayao Miyazaki is a tremendous asshole. I just saw oh, all the details you know he in a spirited way. Yes, you know, you he know, is. he is. Uh, I think you yeah. have to be an asshole to create good, good, good content. But I think you have to be willing to take risks and push things and, and kind of get your way and stand by things. And yeah. if you're just trying to please everyone, then, you know, you're not going to be able to do that. And I, there was a filmmaker that I talked to a while ago, and, and she did have a bit of a reputation for being an asshole. And she said, yeah, well, I'm difficult. Yeah, I'm difficult. But like, at the end of the day, the studio is everybody else, like they, they're not going to care about this film yeah. in a few years, but I'm going to live with this for the rest of my life. So yeah, but there's a difference between yeah. being difficult and an asshole, and I think like I, I'm not like promoting a hostile. I, th <laughs> I think too that people put too much stock in like the personality uh, and the personality of, of the filmmaker, and you know, mm -hmm. and and they get these these uh, sort of tabloids of like, oh, this is like I remember the whole uh, Christian Bale meltdown oh, right, on yeah, Terminator that, Salvation. Okay, that's why, yeah. He was right. He was right. You know, the cinematographer fucked up majorly, lost him a lot of money. Christian Bale was right to, to scream at him. The person who was in the wrong was the person who was uh, recording it and leaked it. That shit happens all the time. It's like, why are you going to record it and leak it? I mean, the real asshole in that situation, I think, is the leaker. Uh, you know, I, unless, maybe, unless maybe the leaker wanted um, Shane Hurlbut to get even more humiliated to show that how he was acting unprofessional in that set that day. But... Um, 
you know, it's like, but you get these, you get these glimpses, uh, you know, it's, it's all sort of like a, a simulated sort of uh, relationship with the filmmaker, with the actor, whoever. Exactly. And, and, you know, and then this, this persona, this fictional persona is created of this person. And it's like, wow, Kanye West is an asshole, uh, mm. you know, and it's like, maybe, it's but, mm. but, but who cares? Honestly, who cares? Like, I think his asshole thing is actually charming. Yeah. I mean, you care if you have to work with that person, then you care. And I have worked with assholes. So I, so yeah. Like, well, I know, but I think I it's a cultural pastiche. Like, that's the problem is that it's, it's plagued art from time immemorial where, well, no, actually, I should say only like really the 20th century mm. when art, cinema, yeah. or rather, um, like, like you know, well, in, actors in my were world considered as an artist, to be like think... lower, lower than prostitutes in ancient Greece, weren't they? Yeah. Like, there yeah, was a different. Yeah. yeah. I wrote I wrote an article actually about that called Reprobate Hollywood. Uh, that was like back mm. during our magazine days. But no, what I mean is like in in my world in the, in the art world, you know, it's like the Afentera ball is sort of like that image from Picasso onwards of this is like the bad boy of the art world. This is like in cinema is no different. The sort of like art house art tour being like a like an egomaniac and a control freak or whatever. Like that's a, a cultural pastiche. I think that it's like it's a marketing tool fundamentally. Yeah. And it's fun to play yeah. into. Like yeah. let's not yeah. let's not pretend that it's not fun to play into that persona. I mean, even as a smaller YouTuber, I sometimes play into that persona because it's fucking fun. It's yeah. a good time to act like that. At the end of the day, I'm my of everything that I do, I'm my own worst critic and I'm always very insecure about things that you know, every like everything that you make as an artist is you're making yourself incredibly vulnerable. Uh, every artist hears every single bit of criticism that's levied their way mm -hmm. um, from one outlet or another. And it's a very vulnerable position to be in. And that kind of playing that character, adopting that persona of the egotistical asshole is fun and it's a little liberating and it helps you deal with that vulnerability. That you but I do think that you need, I, I now I, I don't think that, I don't really have respect for people being just assholes in a sort of a work <laughs> for no reason. Well, yes. what I do think is kind of necessary for an artist and a great creator that I think all of them sort of have in common is like that ability to stick by their vision. Because if you look at so many projects you hear about where like they constantly got rejected or they were uh -huh. told to change certain things and they refused to change these things, lost out. But then in the end, they the reason like the things that people, the audience remembers the most are these like special moments that happen because that person just had that vision, maybe couldn't even explain it. Cause sometimes it's mm -hmm. just this instinctual thing, right? And you just just but you're like, I have yeah. to do this. And then you watch it and that's what you fall in love with. That's what makes that movie memorable and classic and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And you have to have that and if you don't have that i think i think that's why we're seeing you know because a lot of the people who are sort of being promoted right now they're they're playing ball within their the corporate scene. stooges sure yeah, yeah. Or, actually that's that, that's the star wars energy that i'm kind of noticed uh, with the reboot of the star, star wars, wars series <laughs> it does kind of make me look at the prequels with a different view where you know you don't appreciate what you have until it gets replaced by something even worse. Like, no, but like, general, think of it this way, love. Think the of general it. Grievous fight was Kino. Okay, General Grievous fighting Obi Wan yes. better than anything in the sequels. 
Well, no, but what, like, what about but those like transitions? Star Wars you know, is those... the ultimate, right. in my opinion, it's the ultimate neoliberal franchise. It is the mythology for the Bugman. It is the <laughs> like your kids grew up with it. No, hold, hold on, Gio. Hold, no, no. Here's like, why I disagree. There you go. Uh, if you're talking about Campbell, you know, and like the hero with the thousand faces and all yeah. that stuff, that is within Star Wars too. So I see it more as being like the blind man and the elephant. People, no, but it's specifically a bastardization of Campbell. That's what makes it so compelling. Is that it just has enough like umph in terms of mythos to create like redditors having like you know star wars weddings like that's yeah. naming their kids yeah. anakin or whatever like that's but it's still you know. funny how uh george lucas came out of that same circle of directors you know that ended up uh yeah. achieving a lot more artistic uh recognition than lucas and lucas was kind of stuck with all these you know cosplaying star wars fans but i don't know i guess it worked well, out like, for the guy well, like, but the, <laughs> yeah there oh, we go God, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, what Star you were Wars, saying, uh, so, you know, before yeah. you were saying um, how you had this experience in Hollywood where, like, the people were changing your script constantly and they kind of went through committee, which mm -hmm. you see that in other creative industries as well. And it's it's like it, it does kill its soul. But I feel like more and more there's this sense of, like, we're going to hire people who think like us, who get along with oh, yeah. us, we're going to go along with it. And you will. It's kind of like politics. Like, if, if you're starting out politics. politics, right. So if you're starting out in politics uh the way to get promoted is to just go along with the official party line and then by yeah. the time you have any power you've already compromised so much and it's the same thing in, in film and in hollywood so you know you make that change to your script you might have been like a talented writer and, or director or something right but you make these changes you compromise you compromise and over time you maybe like lose the the fight in you anyways or you never had it and so what you then see happen is like unless you're you're getting you know those risks happen at those lower budgets still that you're mm -hmm. saying like the art house films but middle or or like higher level maybe not so much okay i'm gonna white pill i'm gonna white pill everybody here all right <laughs> because hollywood like the people that i know that are these corporate stooges i mean like they're gonna make good money they're they're gonna make good money they're gonna be able to live in la i mean i don't know why you would want to I lived there for a little bit. I got the hell out as soon as I could. You and um, Glink living together now. <laughs> yeah, I'm actually Glink's housemate. So, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's uh, we've been having a, a very good time um, here, and we've already met tons of really interesting people, really cool people here in Austin, um, and uh, some people that are fans of a lot of people who are fans of the show. So I'm glad to be on because okay. they might be watching. Joe My Rogan. Uh, Joe Rogan, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Of course, we're Joe Rogan was actually just in the house. He was on the uh, the new Glink and Kino podcast. Uh, uh, <laughs> he just, you know, he came on as a guest, so we got to be the Joe Rogan. No, I'm just kidding. Um, no, but the white pill is here, I, and I'm going to go back to something we we're talking about a little bit earlier, which is uh, the uh, smiling friends, right? Because Zach Hadel, Michael Cusack, uh, you know, Chris O'Neill, those guys, they got they were able to make smiling friends for like a super, super small budget because they had been doing it themselves for so many years for the internet. And they, you know, where they weren't getting paid to do it. I mean, they're getting paid in maybe like AdSense or, or whatever, you know, through Oni plays or something like that, but they weren't getting paid by like a studio to, to make this stuff. So they learned how to do it themselves and how to do it for cheap. Uh, and I think that, 
what we can see and what I'm hoping to do. I, I mean, I'm hoping to do this with my own channel. Um, I'm hoping to do this with my own channel and get other uh, channels to do this as well. And I know that since I was talking to you about the Gamer from Mars, because uh, I work uh, with the Gamer from Mars uh, as an editor and a writer, and we're trying to bring sort of uh, where he's upping his own production to do like uh, more traditional kind of documentaries and put them on YouTube. And like between him and me, I have all the film equipment that you would need to do that. So the overhead is incredibly low that we can make a, you know, full on documentary for very little money uh, because I mean, of previous investments and everything like that. But I'm hoping to do that even for my own channel. And I think that YouTubers who, use YouTube to learn skills, to learn how to light better, to learn how to do props, to learn how to get, you know, get permits or uh, set scenes and things like that. You know, with each YouTube video, uh, if you're not like a YouTuber who's just sort of, you know, sitting at his computer station and just talking to a camera. And sometimes I do that, that's fine. But like, you know, you go out and you learn and it can be a really great platform for learning how to make movies. And I'm confident that I can make a movie for like, I mean, I did make a ultra low budget movie that I shot on 16 millimeter for 75,000. I think that my next one I can do for even cheaper because of everything that I learned over the last two years. I'm, I'm sure that I can do it cheaper and raising that kind of money is not that hard, even for a YouTuber like me. Um, you know, it's, it's well, where, I, where, where do your movies uh, uh, have a home you think in the future on the internet, film festivals, like what's the trajectory here? <laughs> I, I mean, I think that, uh, so <coughs> like for the kinds of movies that maybe like say a YouTuber goes into making a movie. And I think that some of the problems that YouTubers in the past have gone into making movies for one, one of the problems is that they try to tie it into their YouTube channel way too much. Right. Like I, I wouldn't want to make like a, this is the keynote corner movie or something yeah. like that. Like that's stupid. That's, that's or awful. the uh, nostalgia critic movie. Oh well, those those are great. Okay, look, you're talking about you're talking about a trilogy that beats Lord of the Rings. You're talking about <laughs> Gaseous Suburban Knights and To Boldly Flee. Have you guys seen To Boldly Flee? But but seriously, like you have the angry video game nerd movie mm. where it's essentially just a long episode. Yeah, yeah. And you have um, the Smosh movie, which was made by a. The oh, Bill and Ted guy, uh, Alex Winter. The Fred. <laughs> uh, the Fred, the Fred movies, like they tie it into the, they they tie it too much into their into their like brand that they've made on YouTube, right? Thank God the early YouTubers have just been slaughtered like nothing. Like, <laughs> but I, 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 better I saw but... I saw somebody in the, I saw somebody in the chat bring this up, and this person isn't necessarily a YouTuber, but a podcaster. But I can see this uh, going forward uh, with cinephiles like uh cinephiles in, in this kind of space going forward where we make these really low budget movies and we get them onto a place like shutter or even like i've even been thinking and glink and i have had ideas we're writing a script and our idea is to make a feature length movie for i don't know twenty thousand something like that that we can shoot here in austin with people that we know and everything like that and we make a behind the scenes full-length documentary about it and release that that has that's ad you know that we can get ads on right to kind of make some of the money back and sponsorships for or whatever and then we release the movie itself straight to youtube um 
making these sort of low budget things. But something that somebody brought this up in the chat is Dasha Nekrasova's The Scary of 61st. If you want to check out um, my kind of defunct podcast, uh, KinoCast, I actually had a interview with Mark Rappaport, who was the producer of The Scary of 61st. Um, but she's a podcaster. You know, she's on Red Scare. And, oh, yeah. Um, love, love, that's Love's favorite podcast. And <laughs> But she made this movie for <coughs> less than $100,000 on 16 millimeter. And it was interesting. I'll say it was interesting. Um, I don't know if you guys know the, the storyline of it. Is that, that? Uh, the, these girls in New York move into this apartment and they find out that it was Jeffrey Epstein's apartment and the ghost of Jeffrey Epstein is uh, haunting them. And Dasha <laughs> Nekrasova like shows up and she's like this conspiracy, conspiracy theorist girl. Uh, and one of them gets possessed by like the, the spirit of Epstein. It's an interesting... <laughs> <it's> an- <laughs> It's interesting. <laughs> the engineer, the lolly master, yeah. right? <laughs> might sue them, you know, when he comes back. But but what I'm saying is, like, I see, you know, we saw this with Smiling Friends, right? Newgrounds and um, coming out and making this low-budget stuff, this thing that kind of hits the cultural zeitgeist. And, I, and the thing is, is that if you're a podcaster or a YouTuber, if you're making stuff all the time, you're not in LA sort of just living within that studio system, which is a bubble. They, you know, when you're like us, you have to kind of have an ear to the ground. I think that the low budget, lower budget stuff or whatever that uh, is possible. I'm not saying that it's always going to be good because it's not, but I think it's possible that uh, some of these, you know, some of these works might end up uh, hitting that cultural zeitgeist and being more culturally uh, appropriate and affecting more people, hmm. even if they're not as polished as a studio film. Even but if uh, how not- would you compete with the low attention span that may be inflicting more and more generations to come? <sighs> yeah, TikTok, man. <laughs> I'm convinced TikTok is a Chinese. It's a Chinese weapon that's been designed to. Uh, and you know, and you know how the Chinese TikTok works, as far as I understand. Oh, yeah. In China, they make various shows in TikTok about self improvement. About oh, oh yeah. look at this, you know, wonderful student who got, you know was able to come up with some new device or whatever. You know, it. And I say a lot of bad things about China, but that seems to be actually something that may it's actually smart. work. Yeah, that it's is very smart. smart. Well, the fact they censor uh, their cinema—that's another big sticking point. But then it's like that no, weird... no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go to that direction. All that I'd say no, though is I'm, they, I'm not they, a fan they, of the. They do care about the moral hygiene of their population. Yeah, I don't, do. know it's, I don't know if it's about them caring it's, about the population well, as much as achieving a certain standard. But yeah, okay, Catherine. Well, also, one thing that they do is create games that get people addicted. And for some like Genshin reason, Impact. Oh, yeah. yeah. They're only released in the U.S. or North yeah, America. Yeah, there we go. Yeah. While the, stu- while the students in China. Was it a documentary about that, the uh, Chinese microtransaction games? Or was it? Ordinary yeah, so things. I was one of these yeah. games. And I Good friend of the channel. About it. <laughs> oh, man. But you guys should China- get an ordinary things on here. It'd be interesting. Or, ordinary, oh, yeah. say that again. Ordinary things. Ordinary I think he things. did a documentary on the Chinese tran- like microtransaction games and how it's tied into their social credit system in a weird draconian way. Oh, but, man, um, I'm going to check this out. They also, they also, China also limits 
how much people can play video games That's in true. China. So there's like That's hours. Base. That's good. Yeah, yeah, so well, like it's his funny that they do yeah. that for their population, but our yeah. population they no, but see, but that's the psyop though. It's yeah. it's the same with the censorship because they like support like they're like, they especially the in Canada. The States. Yeah, they'll they'll, they'll yeah. support like progressive or like you know whatever institutions and causes, but yet at the same time oh, they will that. censor any mention of like uh, quote unquote alternative lifestyles in China. Yeah, in the movies. yeah. Like, mm-hmm. they, they've they had this stuff first and then they decided to like limit it. Right. Like they had Hollywood movies, they had all this stuff and then they decided, okay, we don't want it. So I think that like in some ways that might backfire on them. I mean, Mm. I don't want to get too far into a different topic, but I just feel like when you take something away after building a culture of people who like it, you're going to build resentment. So like, well, also if we're we're talking about in the waves though, I think slush has a good point here. And, uh, uh, Philip Daniel said earlier, it's revenge for the opium wars. Uh, Oh, that's right. What China is doing. No, but, but in all seriousness though, anime uh, too. Exactly. (laughs) Yes. But as far as, as far Uh, as what may happen, I still think, I'm curious what you guys think. And I think this is going to be more towards the wrapping up. Everybody sneed your super chats, add a like, uh, right now, because that Wait, helps the algorithm and subscribe. Need and feed. Yes, need and feed those super chats. Yes, yeah. but anyway, uh, yeah, we, we got a bit of time here. But, I wanted uh, to talk about Salo a little bit. Oh, well, yeah. we, we will get to uh, Salo. I'll get back to it. I'm going to, I'll be back in a second. Okay, yeah. go be back in a second. And while you're not here, I just want to say that if you want a high quality magnet of some work, a film that you really admire. If you want Slush's head as a magnet, what you have to do is become a patron of Break the Rules, okay? Become a patron for $5. You're going to get MP3s of the episodes after they come out. When you become a uh, $20 patron, you are going to get the magnets, the wooden magnets, but they're going to be random. You don't really get to choose what it is, but believe me, me, it's going to be a great investment. In the future, you're going to say, I got this magnet while BTR was still in this infant and now that btr has grown to the point of inviting joe rogan over uh every week you know and having a uh, bison dinner on the air and joe rogan is going to be like an old man but he's still going to be powered up because of all the transhumanist stuff that he's implanted inside of himself you know it's going to be a good time for it's all. all the alchemy and the uh the neuro- nootropics that's well what it's a mix of te- it's a mix of technology and uh, common sense but anyway when you become a 20 dollar patron you're going to get those beautiful magnets when you become a 30 dollar patron you are going to get a beautiful uh print from giovanni penichetti i've got two addresses i got to send you by the way uh that you got to send to the people and when you become a 50 dollar patron you're going to get all of that plus instead of the random magnets you get to choose what magnet do i want to have well it's going to be up to you within limits of course you know we can't have you know some uh some crazy you know intense spider you know shooting a web and each piece of wood is like you know like a separate uh part of the web we're not going to do that crazy stuff so just keep it simple but it's still going to look good whatever you want is going to be done and feed and seed exactly feed and seed those super chats and you cannot go wrong with the support through the super chats or the support through the patreon so kino corner I use your opportunity of not being on the air to plug the uh, Patreon, but you have a Patreon too. I want to be fair, right? I do have a Patreon, yeah. So go and support Kino Corner's Patreon, which I'm going to put on the screen right now, as well as supporting the Break the Rules Patreon. In fact, support both, and you are going to, uh, you know, you're you're going to go far in life, kid, if you support both both Patreons. Anyway, getting and, and back, is that an offspring reference? Important. 
Wait, what? You're gonna Cameron? go far, kid? Oh, sorry. I said, oh, oh I said, yeah. oh, wait, my GoFundMe, um, you know, page, please. Yes. Well, it's to, it's to send a dog to ski school. Mm. Oh, we I have a comment over here on uh, Twitter from Carrot Rope who says, totally ask the Kino Corner about post-irony in movies and if there's a cure. I can't stand another Deadpool-type movie coming out. Uh, the cure is to not pay to see these movies. And then not talk about them. Look, if you don't, if you think that a movie, like, okay, so I, you know, I go on Monkeys is a keynote podcast. I know Monkey Jones was in the chat a little earlier and I'll like review the movies and stuff like that. And sometimes I'll talk about them, um, but I'm not going to make a full on video like about why, like, I don't like these cape shit movies or why, oh, I hate the Marvel stuff because the more attention you give them, that's you're you're feeding into them right yeah yeah exactly so i think the only way to stop it is that if you see a movie like free guy or any movie with ryan reynolds really just don't just pretend like it doesn't exist (laughs) (laughs) that's why that's why i cried during that movie you know you you want to know if if you hey you guys want to know something interesting look up deadpool 2 motorcycle accident and how that happened, right? <laughs> that's was, that's something. Was it Alec Baldwin. Well, it's another like Alec Baldwin type situation that no one really talks about anymore. Where they had a stunt woman who wasn't ready for the stunt, um, and they had her do a motorcycle uh, stunt, and she died during Deadpool Two. They were really pushing her when she was definitely not ready, definitely not able to do that stunt. But look well, into it. Just the most bit. extreme don't one, I'd it. say. The most extreme one, I'd the say, Twilight is one? the uh, yes, yeah, no, not Twilight. But it's don't... the no, no, it's the um, it's the Twilight Zone. Yeah, Twilight Zone oh, movie. The Twilight yeah, Zone the movie. Yeah, the helicopter. Oh my gosh! Yeah. Or That's Brandon Lee, a... the crow one. That was, yeah. No, I that Twilight Zone with the John John Landis and that whole fallout. My gosh, that is one of the most depressing things that uh, has I think ever happened in cinema. I mean, the fact that the parents weren't even notified their their kids' heads were cut. Well. One of the kids' heads was cut off. The other was crushed by a helicopter. Oh and God. then um, John and then John Landis seemingly wasn't really even that affected. If you look at his uh, like his testimony and stuff, he was talking more about how this event affected his career and not talking about how three people died oh. under his watch and because of him. Was he I also mean, coked out at the time or no? Was that uh, he? Mo- might have it's been. Hollywood in the eighties, man. Yeah. I'm like, I'm not gonna say yes or no, but it's Hollywood in the eighties. Mm. I mean, with, with somebody like him, it it just makes me very, uh, you know, very torn because on one hand, John Landis is like one of those one in the million types directors, you know, like the Blues Brothers, for example, you know, like very legendary, um, you know, very legendary status there. But at the same time, to have that kind of reaction. Again, like to the comment well, about whether you know they're going to be assholes or not. I mean, that goes beyond being an asshole. I'll say, but I'll say one thing. I'll say yeah. one thing. Max Landis is his son. I Wait. worked with well, Max actually. Really? <laughs> um, I'm very familiar. <laughs> <laughs> Max Landis is his son, and you know, so it doesn't. Uh, Jean Landis being that way doesn't surprise me. I have not seen somebody hate it quite as much as. Uh, 
I actually did. I actually didn't hate him as much as other people did. But <laughs> yeah, wait, I'm up. I'm out of the loop here, and other people may be out of the loop too. Who is Max Landis other than being his son? What does he do? And <laughs> he's a what screenwriter. Why the yeah, reaction Turkey to him Tom like that? Documentary on him recently. Turkey Tom, yeah, Turkey Tom covered it. Oh. Uh, Max Landis, <laughs> he uh, he's actually subscribed to Oki's Weird Stories. I think one of our friends, but um, he's just a weird, he's a weird guy. There's a lot of stuff. I mean, it is a to to go into the Max Landis lore. That's a deep rabbit hole. That's <laughs> too deep for uh, this this podcast. But is one it, of my one of my yeah. favorite uh, anecdotes, I guess. Uh, that I heard about Max Landis. And again, I don't know him. Could be true. Could be Here, Here's a photo of Max Landis. I've never is, seen him before. Now I've is, seen him. He was on Red Letter Media, but they actually, they took down the, the videos that he was on with them. Um, the uh, After, it was some like rape scandal or something like that. He got me too. But one of the things that I did hear, again, could be true, maybe, is... Uh, that after he would sleep with women, he would have a list of all the women he slept with, with uh, denoting whether or not the sex was like good, bad, terrible, whatever. <laughs> and he would show this, and he would show this to the women he had just slept with. That like itself is very effeminate behavior. That can't give, and, by that. And give them a score. Like it was like a score. Oh. <laughs> oh. Looks 10 out of 10. Right? <laughs> <laughs> two out of ten. Yeah. It's just like it's just like you know on Twitter. It's like the mo there's like those guys in their profile pictures. That they're the like ugliest looking dudes, and they'll reply to women with like mid or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> it's the same energy. <laughs> what I wouldn't do. Yeah, they'll reply to like OnlyFans thoughts. And oh man, mm. yeah. Well, there's a lot of uh, a lot of self confidence there, I guess, or maybe the opposite. I don't know. No confidence. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think, uh, yeah, that's that's something else. What were we going to talk about? Okay, so the last thing that I want to talk about, I know that Salo uh, has to be brought up, but before getting to Salo, the last thing that I wanted to address <laughs> is when it comes back to uh, the Star Wars thing. I understand that the prequels were not that favored. I understand what love was psyoped by you know the internet memes right now of talking about the prequels being good. But there was still, despite whatever psyopting uh, people think were you know was done to people who were like the og star wars fans back from the 70s onwards <laughs> there is still something very uh you know very perturbing about the new star wars and i can't exactly put my finger on it but it seems way more forced and it seems i don't know there's something very because very it's strange love, it's yeah. nostalgia that's what it is it's it's shameless it's it weaponized is, it nostalgia. It's postmodern yep. Star Wars. It's it's like the new Matrix, all right. Like okay, uh, Sam Chris, I always bring it up. Has a great article where the very very small time frame, the nineteen nineties, late nineties, early two thousands, where Hollywood was willing to critique itself. You had films like The Matrix, of course. You know, really not. I mean, I agree with Bozier. It's the film that The Matrix would make. Um, you had yeah. films like Existence in particular. Uh, you had Existence other is much better than The Matrix, by the way. Much better, exactly. And much more logical in terms of the way things are going. Yeah. Um, but you have this sort of concretization of the sort of theories of, you know, Neoplatonic simulation and so forth. But you also have a weird period in Hollywood history where Hollywood was willing to, like the culture industry itself was sort of willing to critique itself. It was sort of like this weird... You know what the uh, best... 
and not to cut you off, but you know what yeah, the best ahead. movie for this case is? Is The Truman Show. Yeah, mm. oh, The Truman Show? Yeah, yes. you mentioned The Truman Show, exactly. Yeah. So you have this sort of critique of the fabulation machine. But nowadays, you have this... Now, what, what did Sam Chris say? Um, it's no longer question everything. Now it's like listen and believe, right? Like that's... Mm -hmm. The new Matrix movie is the perfect example of this because you have in it this sort of ironic postmodern like sort of dig at its own self where it's like they're talking about it. They're like literally dialoguing. Yeah. Yeah. Like, is it about the patriarchy? Is it about the simulation? Is it about Jean Baudrillard? It's like, no, it's like this is such ah. Oh. And the the new Matrix is indicative of the capacity by which Hollywood can create that same culture industry can create a mythology onto itself and then not just well, not critique itself, but rather market it its own sort of uh, imagio to the audience by saying, you remember this, remember that now we're going to mm -hmm. have a woke version of that, but it's going to be good because it's still mm. like, the sound that that uh that um oh yeah like a Lord, Lord of the Rings or whatever it's I like mean, that's that's the one thing we <laughs> yeah. didn't talk about. I remember when we wanted to do this stream earlier on. You said that you were making a video on that. I is that video still in production? Did I miss it? Is it uh, what's the situation there? And could we maybe get a bit of a um a bit of a spoiler? Not a spoiler, but a well, bit lastly, of an intro I would to that, say that video. This is why Ready Player One was a great film. Because it's giving it's it's giving away the kayfabe of the the culture industry. Mm. I right. would agree. I would agree with that about Ready Player One, but it's not a great film. Oh, it's a terrible <laughs> film. It's disgusting. Mm. But the fact that it's so disgusting and lurid, and it it says that the it's actual the, yeah, it, it jerks you off the very end mm. by saying that the real solution is just cool down a little bit, but you could still play in your little nostalgic bitch big budget Hollywood video game fantasy, mm. but it's like, it's, there's something about it where it's the ultimate cenotaph to yeah. the culture industry itself. But mm. that being said, but uh, back to, back to uh, the Lord of the Rings question. Yeah, 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 what do you think exactly uh, could be said that has not already be, been said? Are we missing anything when it comes to this or have we already pretty much cracked this nut of what's going on with uh, the new Lord of the Rings uh, reboot right now or whatever it is? Are you talking to Gio or to me? I'm talking to you, Kino. Oh. Yes. No, okay. No, so when I said that I'm making that video, it wasn't about the Lord of the Rings show in particular. It was more like a wide-ranging thing uh, to talk, not just about the Lord of the Rings show, uh, although that's a part of it, but also um, Matrix, uh, Ghostbusters Afterlife, which is the same thing, where it's just it's just pointing to, to symbols of... Uh, of movies that were that were better and it becomes this a pale like simulation essentially of the movie that you can already watch yourself and and that and that's the crazy thing to me right is that i can go back and i can watch the original ghostbusters why am i going to watch ghostbusters afterlife that's going to have all these symbols like the marshmallow man in the context of the film it makes no sense it doesn't make any sense within the context of ghostbusters afterlife but they put all these like things to just to give you a uh, dopamine rush because you're like oh I, I recognize that and that's why um actually when i was watching ghostbusters afterlife i, I went to a, a preview screening where all the fans were there right and there's a shot where they have you know there's a shot where they have all the ghostbusters on in the same frame at one time it's just hero shot right sorry for spoiling it the movie's not that great but um and i <laughs> during these kinds of movies when i'm at the theater i like to play a game where I like to start clapping 
during moments and see if I can get the entire theater. Class. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so, terrible. So during Spider-Man No Way Home, I was able to successfully do it three or four times. Um, <laughs> during <laughs> during Ghostbusters, I started clapping at this, like, oh, and it wasn't like a normal clap. It was the uh, it was the Charles Foster Kane clap, you know, after he watches his uh, wife perform pretty badly on stage, where he's just going like. <laughs> I was doing that clap. I got people standing up. I got them hooting and hollering. They're like, yeah, the Ghostbusters are back. (laughs) (laughs) Can you imagine, like, the type of people... It's like the ghost. Well, it, it, it kind of reminds me of this poster that I just uh, put on the uh, screen over here. It's like the early 90s uh, nostalgia. Oh, oh, that's right. You guys can't see it over here, but you guys could see it in the uh, chat. Let me it's like one of these on. it's like one of these old uh, paintings of in fact, let me just uh, put this into my camera that way you, you guys could I was not aware that the chat was not being seen all this time by the actual people in StreamYard. I forgot about that. Man, I've been checking in. I've been checking Good. in on the chat. Yeah, yes. But uh, but anyway, the point that I'm getting to here is that there is this 90s nostalgia with Pokemon and Sega oh, yeah. and Nintendo. It's all kind of smashed together in this you know oh, congeal- congealing form. Yeah, and it does not feel as a, as authentic a, at all. Yeah, I have, I have strong 90s nostalgia as well, but still, it's like... Ugh. No, it, it, it's, there's something kind of... Typical millennial behavior, right? Yeah. Well, the question, the question about nostalgia though is right i feel like i feel nostalgia but i never feel nostalgia for for properties i feel nostalgia for a mood. uh, mo- moods moments in my life like i remember going to this bakery when i was like three years old with my mom and i was getting the uh, like a petit four and like uh it was always like during these good days and stuff like that i remember the uh how warm it was i remember the smell of uh, the magnolia trees in, in bloom Things like this, I get nostalgic for that. I, I get nostalgic for when I was a kid, I'd ride bikes with my friends all over town. The nostalgia that you see in movies isn't a nostalgia for these uh, personal experiences, these personal moments that actually mean something to you. It's nostalgia for for brands. It's nostalgia for yeah. something that you can buy. And it's, it's really cynical because what they're doing is they're just taking something that they know, and it's like the 30 year cycle, right? So we're entering the 2020s, so it's gonna be the 90s, because now that us 90s kids have grown up, we now have spending money, we can now buy things, and we're gonna feel nostalgic for these personal moments, but that's gonna be repurposed by these studios and corporations to get us to essentially buy repackaged products, uh, whether or not, like remember how the, uh, that purple ketchup came back for a while? It did? Yes, yeah, uh, oh, that shit was yeah. disgusting. Surge, surge came back, and it and surge uh, came back. Yeah, and oh it's God. so these things will come back, and you know, and it's so cynical to me because it's not. It's just like, hey, remember? Because what they're essentially saying to you is, remember when you were happy? This was a brand that you liked, and so now you're going to associate this this particular yeah. brand with happiness. Because well, we jokes know on life... them. I was never happy. <laughs> because now your life sucks. But maybe you can get a now little Now we live filthy. in hell clown world. Yeah. That's... Yeah. Now your life sucks. <laughs> but you can at least pretend that you're living in the past if you buy our product that we're just repackaging to you. And it's and and they know that they can they know that they can sell a bunch of this shit. I am nostalgic for times when I didn't even exist. Like I'm nostalgic. Yeah, for like a place I... you never knew. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, for like Japanese yeah. uh, city pop. I mean, that's another interesting development that's going on with the internet. People are being exposed to all these different musical genres as well as movie genres. But specifically with Japanese city pop, it's this time in Japan where economically they were doing really, really well. And there was all of this, uh, you know, very uh, energetic music that denoted that kind of time, you know, as well as mm -hmm. all these pretty girls who are dressed up in these uh, frilly 80s outfits. Yeah. You know, people like, miss that because they recognize that. I'll, I'll give you this example. There was this wonderful anime, which I recommend everybody check out. It's called, I believe, Megazone 33. I don't know. People in the chat, let me know if you've heard of that one. But uh, this is going to be a minor spoiler. Not a full thing, but the whole place, uh, the, the, whole, um, the whole series takes place in this satellite of Earthlings that had to flee a dying planet Earth. And while the planet Earth was being rebuilt, their colony had to mimic a certain time in the cycle of the Earth. So it chose to mimic the 1980s in Japan, where all the people who were living there said, like, this is like the most peaceful time that human beings have ever existed in. So that's yeah. why the algorithm, you know, like the AI chose to have them live in that uh, place. And I think that there is something to that, why people are drawn to that kind of energy. But I do wish that there was a way that we can transmute that desire and actually create something new instead of just relying on the like, old. But that's the thing, Lev. Like, I know people that write for fucking zero books have beaten this to death, but like, and they've done it for the wrong reasons. But you have this sort of like ontological thing where, especially with millennials, because we are like the crossover generation from when time was became virtual and simulation take, took over everything from culture and politics to ordinary life to like this mythical past where the well i mean unless you lived in you know eastern europe or the congo river the 90s were like uh you know this mythical place of cultural creation and authenticity because you know was, the, the wall fell and the end of history was about to come but right before the end of history uh you know right before the towers fell things were kind of perfect right like that that is what i think um becomes a mental prison unto itself because yeah. now we're essentially seeding the imagination of most people onto the past, but onto the recent past. It can't be like the actual past because that's, you know, that that's nothing like has a bunch of isms. Yeah. Nothing oh, foundational. Ahead, yeah. I was just going to say it's, it's nothing foundational. It's pointing to just, I mean, the nineties culture is still very similar to culture now. Like if you look at fashion and everything, it really mm. hasn't, it really hasn't changed a whole lot. Um, uh, it's not like we're looking towards uh, a, a kind of creation myth of our nation or of our uh, ideology in a, in a sense. Um, right. In fact, we're tearing, we've been tearing it down and kind of making us live. Uh, I don't know. It's, I mean, I remember the nineties as being definitely a freer time, but, right, right. but people do have this mythical idea of the nineties and they kind of forget like for one, they, they forget Serbia. They forget uh, all the stuff that was happening in Yugoslavia, or former Yugoslavia. They forget Waco. They forget... Yeah, well, uh, in the 90s, they're thinking of like the American 90s living in... No, the, the American 90s, yeah, but we were involved in that. There was no, still like a lot of... International I mean, affairs. But, thinking about like domestic life. No, but domestic too, American, Waco. American life peaked, right? 
Well, yeah, you can yeah. yeah, but Waco, Waco, it was one instance. Well, there's also Ruby Ridge, but still Ruby Ridge and in, Oklahoma City bombing. Yeah, sure, but but, but still, in terms of like all the things that are around us today, as far as like the idea of the security state, TSA, yeah. all these things that we have had to deal with since that uh, fateful day, it does seem like there is this uh, before and after. And there's definitely yeah. before and after. There is. I mean, yeah. We're living yeah. in another before and after right just, now, right? Like we're living in post COVID. Yeah, I'm just, I'm, I'm, yeah just, I'm just saying that because I just want to like temper the 90s with like there was plenty of stuff yeah. that was not great. And actually, I just watched um, Richard Link and talking about this. I just watched Richard Linklater's new movie called Apollo Ten and a Half, A Space Age Childhood, which is done in the rotoscope animation like how he did a Scanner Darkly and Waking Life. Um, and it's kind of a Waking video. Life, nobody mentions that, but that is like, oh, mwah, yeah, that, yeah I just I just showed Glink Waking Life. I, uh, I'm, I'm link later killing him. Um, but, uh, I mean, it's... Uh, just an aside before you go on the Alex Jones in waking life was much more authentic to Alex Jones is than in scanner darkly. Oh so, yeah. And yeah. in scanner darkly, he's playing a bit of a parody of himself, but, yeah. uh, and, but, um, so, but link later's new movie is coming to Netflix on April 1st. I'm going to try to get like a review discussion about it out before then. But, um, it's about what it was like to live as a kid in the sixties. And it's more of like a video essay just mm -hmm. about life. Like basically what his life in Texas was like at that time in the late sixties, watching this space age and watching, t you know, TV playing with friends, kind of the differences and, and culture. And, and what he does is he, he shows like all this kind of really nostalgic stuff and then he'll intercut it with like uh, showing archival footage of, of Vietnam or of, pro of riots of, you know, all these terrible things that are happening because also the late sixties, you know, you had a lot more political violence that was starting to come in the seventies were terrible for that. Of course yeah. you see that in film too, at the time, straw dogs, you know, mm -hmm. he's trying to escape the violence in the States. A lot of people forget that aspect of it is that he's an intellectual trying to escape all this like increasing violence. And he goes to England only to find the violence there. Yeah. But taxi driver and everything like that. It, um, it would have been funny if he would have gone to the USSR thinking that would be better. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They, exactly. they, one thing they'd never showed, by the way, in the propaganda pieces back in the USSR were American roads. They showed homelessness in America. That's what yeah. they wanted people to think America was like. They never showed the roads because they knew they couldn't compete. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, Didn't they also teach that the moon landing was faked? Well, I mean, okay. I, I think so. That's what I heard. No, no, I think I think the moon landing was real, but it wasn't the moon landing that we saw. I think that there's like all kinds of bases on the moon and, you know, Operation High Jump and all that right. stuff. It's hollow. It's well, maybe. Look, I, mean, I saw this, I saw this one movie. I saw this one movie that was pretty convincing called Iron Sky. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You no, know, I mean, that I, convinced me. I'm not surprised if you have like <laughs> Admiral Byrd, who uh, went to a newspaper there in South America and wrote about the uh, threat of the uh, Third Reich in Antarctica. Again, I have to actually have the newspaper in front of me. I have to go to the archives to see if this is real. If this is real, then that's kind of a big deal as far as like all the UFOs that we see today and the things that we attribute to those UFOs being able to go underwater. That stuff was talked about back in the 50s. Anyway, I don't want to I show think my... we live in yeah. space right now, actually. Yeah. What we happened was we were all copied. Our brains were uploaded onto a cloud, then loaded onto a computer that had like a spaceship. Then we were flown to a different planet 
reorganized. Our bodies were grown in bio labs and then uh, we're reconnected with our minds. So we think we're the same, but we're actually the clones of the people on Earth. I 100% You know what's agree. funny is that Francis E. Deck actually believed that. That was, yeah. So they should make yeah. a movie on him. Geo's got to get Catherine Francis E. Deck peeled. Anyway, before, <laughs> okay, before we end Go to this. Outsider Theory Podcast with Jeffrey Schulenberger. Did a whole one uh, hour-long episode on Francis E. Deck with him. So, and he's an actual academic. Nice. Well, let us let us hit the deck with uh, some uh, super chats. So as I'm saying the super chats, once again, everybody who is watching this, sneed those super chats to break the rules right now. Add a like. The like helps the algorithm. And once again, listen, the people who are watching this, who are fans of Kino Corner, who are fans of Slush, subscribe, subscribe, and keep subscribing. There's going to be a lot of great guests uh, uh, coming your way soon. So anyway, let us go into the super chats. We got Haley May, $5. Would Kino Corner like a movie made entirely in a constructed language like Anglish? <laughs> or Simlish. uh i mean he's gonna make it yes i mean sure like you know whether or not the the people are speaking a constructed language or whatever it's it's like i don't really care as long as the movie's good so if it fits this if it fits the world that they're building or something like that like you have plenty of constructed languages in films and in television and in film and in novels and everything like that it's not like it's a it's not like it's a new thing but it's kind of like okay what if i watch a lord of the rings movie that's all in uh elven or the elf elven language it's like that would be cool uh, i don't necessarily like i i can see the problems with it you know it's a constructed language so your actors aren't going to be uh fluent in it and it might make their acting a bit more wooden but if you're able to get past that if they're able to give good performances well speaking in a language that they don't know, uh, then all power to it. Yeah. It reminds me of an idea that I uh, had for an animation. No, I did that animation, actually, the Pokemon animation, where the humans became the Pokemon. So they started speaking like their own name or their own title or whatever, and uh, it got reversed. Anyway, we got over here the ABC. uh, No, before that, Croin Kicks, $20. Woo! That's what I'm talking about, baby. That's what I'm talking about. Croin Kicks, our resident uh, Zoomer, who is a big fan of uh, movies, so he was the one who was talking about how I'm wrong in assuming that Zoomers do not know movies. Zoomers do know movies. So thank you, Croin Kicks. That Zoomer knows movies. Well, that's a good point, too. So Croin Kicks says, appreciate BTR. My favorite movie is Sneed for BTR. (laughs) All right, there we are. Uh, Next, ABC, one, two, three, four, five, six, three, nine, nine, five dollars. Anime music. Just look at the physique of your average berserk enjoyer versus your average cape shit consumer. Uh, consumer coomer. <laughs> he meant movies. He meant movies. He said animes are greater oh, than movies. Oh, there we go. Anime is greater than. Uh, do you agree? <laughs> look. I don't know about that, but berserk I don't know is about definitely that. better than anything. Yeah. Have you seen YouTube anime reviewers? I'm just <laughs> Oh no, that's that's what are you saying here? Spell it out for, for the I no, I'll let I'm people come to their own friend. conclusions. I'm not yeah, gonna uh, I'll let people come to their own conclusions. That's a, that's a that's a cold little stab. That's a knife that's been sitting in the in the fridge for uh half a day. <laughs> All right, so next we have 
ABC, uh, no, yeah, another ABC, thank you. Mo- okay, see, this is all censored, so I don't even know. Movie something censored, I'm such a... No, 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 he was just correcting the last one. Oh, there we go. I saw perfect. that earlier, yeah. Perfect, perfect. He called himself a retard, yeah. Yes. Croin kicks $5. What if Linklater said about l'argent is... What Linklater said about l'argent is BS. That was an excuse to say it twice because I like speaking French. Uh, Lancelot du Lac is his most violent. Presson is the greatest. Ha, ha, ha. Well, Lancelot du Lac is his most violent, yes. But I think that the violence uh, in the third act of L'Argent uh, is uh, it's a bit more harder hitting because it's a lot more cold-blooded than in Lancelot du Lac. Like you kind of, I mean, Lancelot du Lac is way bloodier uh but it's medieval knights and it's like maybe it's it's more expected because mm. of the subject matter whereas in Larjon, this character becomes uh, a mass murderer with an axe and you don't see as much it's not quite as bloody um but i think that for link later i think he's uh you don't have to agree with his assessment but i can understand his assessment because that violence to me is more shocking and it's probably more shocking to link later that maybe why he said that but yeah Lancelot de Lock, uh definitely has way more blood and gore in it but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's more impactful I still love Lancelot de Lock. I I love I don't think there's a single person film that I dislike except I think that uh Angels of Sin uh Les Anges du Péché I think that one is kind of mid but then again that was like a studio film that he did when he was just getting started so hmm. So next we have ABC again, who for two dollars recommends a certain uh, greatest story that has, uh, uh, for what he's talking about, has uh, ever been told. And uh, there we go. There's that. So next, I've seen part of it. I've seen part of it. And I can tell you, it's not. It's not good. Monkey sent it to me uh, two months ago and was like, "Hey, you should watch this." I got an hour into it, and it's. It's terrible voiceover mixed with sometimes montages of uh, a certain German leader looking very happy. Austrian and playing around. Yes, and Ka- it, Ka- Catherine, I just want you to know what exactly is being talked about here. Sorry, never told. <laughs> so it was wait. a meme on. It was a meme on Fortune, like In like twenty sixteen. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, and then it it straight up like steals the music from Band of Brothers, and I found found that so. Ironically funny. <laughs> and so Bumpy asked me if I liked it. I was like, well, the film, like the whole, it feels like a YouTube video, like one of those like kind of schizo YouTube videos it's made. But I like the music to Band of Brothers. So when they played that music, I'm like, well, I like that music. You know, I guess that's the one thing. But it's, I'm glad I wouldn't recommend it. I wouldn't recommend it. Everyone will watch it right after stream, all five hours. Yeah. Band the Brothers, more like, told. Ba- Band, the, Band the Brothers, more like Boon the Brothers. <laughs> all right. Oh, anyway, Massive McGee, two pounds. Zoomers, no movies, geriatrics. Okay. <laughs> Next. I am, I'm fighting for the Zoomers. I'm, I'm your Well, you got I'm the Zoomer champion. perm going on. You got. Uh, it's, not, it's not even a perm. My hair is just like this. Naturally. There we go. Haley May, a- English is better than Elvish. Okay. There we go. I don't know. What, what does English sound like? Hello, uh-huh. governor. <laughs> Hello, gov. All right, next. All right, Listen, we got to talk about Sallow. I forgot about Sallow. Let's talk about Sallow and let's end this thing. Okay, yeah. Sallow. 
Go. South's a good movie. You got to watch it. No. That's really your family. No. Uh, Go ahead. Go ahead. So, so uh, the thing that got, that brought me to Sallow is, uh, is the fact that it was one of these movies where it's one of those movies, right? Where people say like, dude, this movie's really fucked up. Like, you, you know what I mean? Like, it's really fucked up. Like, you don't want to watch it. And It's like philosophy of a knife. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, people are saying this to me. And you go on YouTube and you saw all these videos. And it's all about just like, Sal is so gross. It's but it, And every time I see that about a movie, I think to myself, it can't be that bad. Like, like people like are like. Serbian cannibal film. Holocaust. Yeah. It, 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 I'm like, it can't be that bad. Everyone's acting like it's some boogeyman film. And like. It, you know, if you know that it's all fake, then why do you think it's going to be something that's going to just get to your nightmares for the rest of your life it, or something like that? Is it more is it more bloodier than uh, Martyrs? Have you seen Martyrs? No, uh, Martyr, no, it's Ma- Martyrs no, is it's bloodier. Way Martyrs mm. is way bloodier. Martyrs is way different. Um, I was actually more shocked by Martyrs than I was by Salah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But Sal, like, so everyone was talking about this with Salah. And then I watched Salah and I think, that was an incredible movie. For one, it's beautiful. I mean, every Pasolini film is beautiful. And if you want to get into Pasolini, maybe a better introduction to, well, he has two different kinds of movies. Um, he has like his, uh, well, the trilogy of life comedy, which is sort of like a animal house, but in like medieval Italy. Uh, I mean, those are great, but I say also watch Theorema or Theorem. And that's maybe more in line with what Sal is. And, you know, and in my head, I have like two different ideas of like, I have an idea of like two different kinds of movies. There's like narrative films that are meant to tell stories. It's kind of like most films that you watch. And then there's poetic movies that feel kind of like poetry on screen. So I put Sal in there, put most of Terrence Malick in there, uh, Brisson in there. Um, And Sal is incredibly poetic. And for one, I mean, I was blown away by the cinematography and the set design initially and just it has this coldness to it it feels theatrical but um you know it opens up with a bibliography uh and that was something that kind of surprised me the first time i watched it where it wants you to read roland barth and um simone de beauvoir and uh i mean he he takes from a whole lot of different philosophers in this and uh something that's interesting that i didn't bring up in the video is that they're the fascist uh, maid or their servant is named uh, Evola. Um, <laughs> 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 yeah, it's a really just sort of um, oh, passing fuck. thing. Oh, by the way, speaking of Evola, I completely forgot the super chat over here. Uh, my oh, apologies. <laughs> okay, so uh, Nick Larson, 199. Geo, please do another dramatic biblical reading. And where could people find your <laughs> dramatical readings? Giant Productions, YouTube.com, my YouTube channel. There we yeah. go. And uh, final um, final super chat we have over here. Uh, ABC says, I meant the Jesus movie. I don't know what Jesus. that was in reference Which to. Which Jesus movie? Uh, Last Temptation of Christ is my favorite. I don't know about oh, Kino Corner or Slush. Oh, God. Oh. Uh, that was the best one. I don't know. That was the worst one. <laughs> Anyways, it's totally heretical. Speaking um, of those no, Brooklyn accents, you... the lion with the Brooklyn accents, great. <laughs> <laughs> um no but you yeah you mentioned the stage piece i think the fact that um it's it's set i mean at the later stages of fascist italy it gives it yeah. almost an apocalyptic feel in the sense of 
things coming to an end. Um, and but but what I was shocked about your review of it was that you come up with the I think in my opinion the best interpretation of what Pasolini meant by Sallow because at the time critics they loved it because they took it to be like what would you say like just ordinary shit lib critique of like fascism yeah. being this emotive upsurge of the unconscious that is chaotic and has an Oedipal character and the sort of sexual terrorism that goes into Salo uh-huh. is like indicative of the fascist mind. Yeah. The blah, 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 you know, that like basically, yeah, exactly. yeah that's like the lib critique of it. Right. But what you pointed to is sort of what I would say in terms of the actual content, which is from Desaad himself is yeah. a greater critique of the sort of prevailing global neoliberal order of things in terms yeah. of the rendering of the human subject down to its basest parts down become into cons- consumable products. Exactly. And, this and it's is a fascism. The... It's a fascism of this, if you want to call it late stage capitalism or post capitalism or consumerism or, or whatever it is, right. but it is, it is a fascism. I mean, and we see that, you know, we're being made to eat shit every single day where we're the seed oils. Yeah, yeah the, the seed oils, yeah. the Marvel movies, the, you know, Disney, everything like that. We're being made to, to do that. But um, the, the logic of mass production, that is the, <coughs> the sort of the key of it, because I wouldn't necessarily describe it as a fashion because fascism has its own sort of um, yeah. unique genealogy. But I would say that it's, it's certainly an anarcho tyranny. I know that's a meme term in the online, mm-hmm. right? but like, what you, like the one line, um, us fascists, the true anarchists, you pointed yeah. to that in the sense of total power being an anarchic force. And th- this is yeah. again, what uh, people would say, th- this is what Deleuze even said about the film and about um, fascism in general, that it can also become a rhizomatic thing. It can also have a sort of um, channeling of desire in a certain chaotic mm-hmm. th- fashion. But well, um, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a weird thing, though, because there's a lot of words that are being said over here. And while I am not going to disagree that a lot of these elements that are creeping into our lives as far as the seed oils, the sneed oils, all this stuff is something that we have to, you know, be very vigilant on. And I think something a lot of people are not vigilant on who are not paying as much attention at the same time. I really think that when people become terminally online, their sense of judgment of, uh, let's say, having an order of operations, looking at, uh, for example, you know, what what exactly is going on in your life versus the life of somebody who is in a situation where they could be arrested for saying the wrong thing, where, you know, like anything that reeks of the kind of solution that unfortunately no, 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 but, I find no, no, I, totally. I find to be the answer to but, a lot of these uh, yeah, but, existential questions from people that yeah, at the Franklin, same time that's, oppose that's them too, uh, for the you know yeah but that's rightly too much of an point that's not what I'm getting at I'm getting at the picture of the human subject that is portrayed by Pasolini and it comes specifically from that Enlightenment approach of instrumental reason like this so Horkheimer and Adorno in the Dialectic of Enlightenment they talk about how Desaad is the perfect Enlightenment subject. From Kant mm-hmm. onwards, because now you have this categorization of all life into one specific, very um, broken down unit, right? So that one scene you were talking about where they're expecting the men and the women, and there's no faces, 
There's just the the sort of uh, the hole, right? They're looking yeah. for the perfect ass, right? Yeah. The the human subject is rendered down into its bodily function into a hole to manipulate. That is Desaad. That is the sort of sadomasochism yeah. that you're looking at. But notice how they're linking it directly to the sort of modern Western project of now you are a faceless cog, you are re, you're reprogrammable, you are an individual unit. But also in Salo, which I think the critics would link it to fascism, but I would say what you were saying is that there's something deeper going on than just like, you know, political gripes is yeah. that there's certain moments where there is a denial of the procreative act within the behavior of the aristocrats within, you know, they, they, there was this one scene where they were stopping two of the, they did the ritual wedding. They were stopping them from actually having sex to yeah. do a, an oral act. Uh, and, and of course there's a lot of sodomy and they talk about how sodomy itself is like this little death, right? There's yeah. a denial of that sort of vitality of life in this it's, very chaotic well, power structure. The, the, the thing is, is that, yeah, the thing is, is that they, uh, even outside of homosexual sex within the film, even if they're having sex with a woman, it's still, they're still committing sodomy because they want right. to, they want to have the act while denying the life giving aspects that that act can, um, can produce. Exactly. And exactly. so it's, it is a sort of a constant, it is kind of a constant death. And it's not to say this in a homophobic way, because obviously Pasolini himself was gay. Um, oh yeah, he was. Yeah. yeah. And, but you know, he was definitely, he, you know, and so people thought that it was anti-gay or something like that. There, I've also seen those criticisms and it's like, well, I don't know, maybe he was self-hating. Who knows? Um, <laughs> like, I think he saw possible. something deeper in how there is a sort of, sexual humiliation that comes with this excess of power that comes from the unconscious that is Mm. sort of like for example um horkheimer Udorno they talk about how in juliet um in justine the very the virtuous sister is a martyr to the moral law juliet however draws the conclusion of the bourgeoisie sought to avoid she demoralizes catholicism as the latest mythology and what is civilization as a whole the energies previously focused on the sacramental are now devoided perversed to sacrilege this inversion mm-hmm. is extended to community in general and all of Juliet does not proceed fanatically as Catholicism has done with Incas, but merely attend to the business of sacrilege and its effect in the page over to free of the, to be free of the stab of the conscious is an essential to formulistic reason to be free of love and hate remorse posits the past, which contrary to popular ideology has always meant nothing to the bourgeoisie as something which exists is a relapse to pervert, pervert which bourgeoisie practice so they're saying that every human sentiment has to be broken down in this sort of total enlightenment system of instrumental reason yeah and the human individual itself has to be broken down into something that doesn't have a history or doesn't have um an affect to it and that and that lack of history uh plays right into sallow too because i know that you talk about the apocalyptic thing but how and we know looking back on it because it takes place in Italy in 1944, 1945. We know that Italy loses that, you know, 1945, it all comes to an end, but the film doesn't give us that picture. The film gives us, gives us the picture. And this is how Pasolini saw it is that basically how Pasolini saw it is that fascism coming to an end in Italy was not the end of the bourgeois uh, control of power. It wasn't the end of any of this. It was, it was a, it was a fashion that they went through but they're still doing the same thing. And so it ends with the two uh, young, with them 
murdering and torturing, you know, all the uh, all the adolescents. And then the two younger sort of protégés, because they have a couple, like four protégés that are obviously meant to take the place of the libertine Slater, the two protégés dancing with each other while everyone is getting murdered outside. And it gives you this idea with this music that's playing, gives you this idea that it's this eternal thing, that they're in this eternal cycle um, and that it's going to keep on going on, that there's going to be more victims, that this isn't, that they're going to grow up to take the libertines place. Something that I think that, that the film really improved upon on the book. I had some people tell me, oh, the book is so much better. Try reading the book. <laughs> Try reading the book. Yeah. It's, it's unreadable. It's, it it's no, there's it's, a, there's a strange thing here. And I confess, I have not seen this movie, but from the description that you're saying right now, this uh, cyclical approach to saying that ultimately there's no good decision that you could possibly make, that everything is going to wind up being the same shit. I don't think I th that's what he's saying, though. Okay, if that's not I don't what he's think saying, that's, then I... No, no, I don't think that's what he's saying. He's painting, a, um, he's painting a picture about power and about the cycles of power. Um, but I don't... But he does give hope in the sense of there's... He does give hope within the film, like the man who uh, puts up his fist against... He gets shot down, but it shows that even among their own ranks, there is resistance against, against them. And what he also does, and what I was going to say, what I think Pasolini does, um, and for people who might still want to say that uh, the Sod's book is better, I read the Sod's book, okay, the 120 Days of Sodom. It, it's unfinished. I mean, like, it's okay, I guess, for the first, like, you know, until the second whatever. And then it just becomes a list of nefarious acts for hundreds mm. of pages. It's like, yeah. have you read uh, Justine? By the way, that's the one I read for college. In <laughs> no, I haven't SBA. read Justine. No, I haven't so read Justine. It, it, it's a yeah. very interesting, but it also has that whole. I mean, the uh, Marquis de Sade. You know, he wanted, from what I understand, complete destruction of uh, humanity. That was kind of yeah. his whole. <laughs> yeah. His whole thing. Yeah. Notice, but, but getting back, I want to get back to it. I want to get back yeah. to it. Is that the libertines in the book 120 Days of Sodom? Uh, were like the ultimate alpha males. Like, like Giga Chads, yeah. They're the Giga Chads. I mean, they're described <laughs> as having like penises that are just like like a foot long or it's like crazy, you know, and they're just the Giga Chads who just, they're just so cool and blah, 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 and they just want to like just push it. But the the libertines that Pasolini presents in- They're the bug um, men. They're like- They're, they're bug men. They're, yeah. they're impotent. And the thing is, is that this anarchy of power- uh, this sort of ability to break these taboos is the only thing that's giving them any sort of feeling. It's the only yeah. thing that gives them any sort of joy that they're devoid of anything outside of uh, other people's pain and uh, or of their own pain. And it's this sort of like uh, it, he's painting the, the modern intellectuals. And I mean, there's a reason why there one is a, a, a bishop, one's a judge. Uh, one is, uh, I, politician, I forget what you have, I think, yeah. yeah, politician and it, they're higher up people, but he paints them not as these giga chats, but as bug men, which is definitely, uh, definitely, a, a truer, uh, sort of, uh, and the, and the to, court, yeah. the courtist says the madams, they come in, it's very similar to what, um, Paglia, when he, she talked about Desaad, uh, and also Jonathan Bowden, uh, from the more far right, uh, has similar thesis talking about the sort of act of violation of femininity 
what Paglia called the female transvestite, where they take on this role of power because they're very important. They have to like, they have to go every morning. It's like a ritual that they hear yeah. these debaucherous acts. These aristocrat women have done. It's it's very and like you were saying, it's very theatrical. It's almost a stage performance. But and you think about it too. You think about how that can relate to our everyday life, right? Where we like the media, right? Or I mean, because it's like the media, right? They're all sitting in this room watching this this lady uh, talk, and you could definitely draw parallels to people sitting in a room watching television and how the language is used to sort of rewire their brains to be more accepting of them being violated later yeah. on. And yeah. it's like how we are, how media rewires our brains to be more accepting of our freedoms being taken away. That is the language sort of, they manip they use the language to manipulate the masses. And that's definitely a part of the, uh, the women. And the women are more eloquent. They're more like people will probably like to, to look at a woman dancing around and more than a bug man, more than definitely the, you know, a lot of the, the creepy dude, and, yeah. the creepy dude. It's like, it's a nice, dance. it's a nice face. It's a nice face to this uh, evil. Mm. Yeah. Well, there's all sorts of uh, faces uh, connected to uh, evil that people experience in different ways. It could be a nice face of a beautiful lady. It could also be a face of someone who's seen as being very heroic. These things come in all different uh, shapes and sizes. And I think it's going to be up to people to be able to discriminate in a very uh, wise way when it comes to this and try to not fall into peer pressure. That's the last yeah. thing that I want to leave people with. Don't fall into the peer pressure. Even if everybody who is around you thinks a certain thing, don't fall for that just so you can be, you know, Mr. I'm cool on the internet here, you know? Like, we have to we have to keep things in perspective. And with that, I want to wish everybody a wonderful Oscar day, Oscar night, whatever. I don't know who you guys think is going to win. That's the last question. Who do you think is going to win? In the name of the dog. That's, that's going to win. Woof, woof, all right? Name the dog. All right. Uh, what do you, who do you think is going to win, Slush? Uh, I just said interrogate yourselves. Interrogate yourselves. Because just on the peer pressure thing, because it's like you might not even realize that you're thinking something that your peers think. That You might think that it's an original thought if you don't interrogate yourself. Watch Andre Rublev. Yeah, there, there you go. go. <laughs> I'm yeah. against the current thing, actually, so don't worry about it. And, well, yeah. on, Andre Rublev, I don't even know if he existed. I mean, as far as the actual painting that was made back in the day, that mm -hmm. one was done so much over and over again by other artists. So yeah. it's even difficult to say whether or not that uh, you know movie, uh, which is a great movie, whether yeah. it's it is true, a great true movie. to form. It is a great you should movie. watch it. It's a great movie. Who cares I, if he existed? Right, he exists in the mythological, in the myth. Yeah, yeah but it kind of it kind of fucks things up. For example, when you have Alexander Nevsky, who is being portrayed as this hero, you know, like with the Germans, you know, throwing the babies into the fire and with <laughs> yeah. their swords, like the crosses, which I think kind of inspired George Lucas in a way. Only yeah. to later on find out that the guy was selling out his, uh, well, not even his own people, because he was a, a Swede but he was selling out the Russians to the uh, Golden Horde, you know, in exchange for money, burning down villages that wouldn't pay the Mongols, you know, the best, bad stuff. The best thing we got out of, out of Alexander Nevsky was a one-off joke in the movie Red Dawn, where after the Soviets take over that town in Colorado, you see on the movie theater marquee, it says, Alexander Nevsky free every day. 
<laughs> and with oh, that, man. I bid you guys farewell. And also be sure to check out Kino Corner on YouTube. Go there right now. You're going to have mm. a stream streaming. In an hour and a half. In an hour and a half. Yeah. Watch it. And then watch the Tim Heidecker on cinema thing, which, uh, which is going to be very exciting. So Kino Corner and Slush, where can people find the great and powerful Slush? Yeah, you can find my content on youtube.com slash slush TV. I also have Twitter, but I don't really tweet that much anymore. But it's at slush TV underscore if you, if you want to see me tweet a bunch of nonsense. Um, <laughs> but yeah, watch my YouTube videos. There we go. And uh, subscribe to me on Twitter, twitter.com slash lovepo. I just came out with a new artwork, which you guys are probably not going to see right now because I did not configure the chat correctly. But I, you know what? I could put it in here just so just so the good people could see it. I could actually put it into the OBS. So this is my Twitter, and I'm going to attempt to heroically grab this file if I can. And while I'm doing that, I just want to thank everybody for being here, watching what you have been watching right now. It is a great joy to uh, be a part of, uh, you know, like a whatever whatever this internet thing is whatever is being built right now it is a great pleasure okay here we go i'm gonna put truster in my camera this is the latest piece that i did here we go let's see all right here you can see him this is truster oh god what do you think of truster huh <laughs> so this is a new this is a new crypto art just, that i did it's bouncing that's that's this, disturbing so it's <laughs> more see. disturbing than salo you guys oh, could actually, <laughs> so you guys could actually invest. You guys can invest in Lev, so you can actually buy a real-to-life Truster NFT, which will be all yours. Wait, you is that own the this Sonic enemy? Uh, it's probably based on Robotnik in a way. I think I, I may know. have. I meant like like the chickens in like Sonic. Is it Sonic Two or Sonic Three? I don't remember. Okay, there there was a chicken enemy which was on a uh, like a tank like thing. I don't remember. I think it was called yeah, Cluck. Yeah, that's what I'm about. yeah, I may have been inspired by it. I don't know. But anyway, I just posted a link to the Twitter post that I did about the art piece as well as the super rare because this is on super rare, which is a super exclusive uh, crypto art thing. So. You can purchase this on Super Rare. You can invest in Lev early. I'm going to be coming out with an NFT series of a certain animal, which is going to be much better than those damn dirty uh, apes. You know, forget the <laughs> apes. You got to invest in Lev. And this is the kind of creativity that you are going to be privy to once you invest in Lev. Those beautiful, joyful melons that are bouncing up and down. This is where Truster stores his memory. And there's like a whole biography about him so anyway read upon truster invest in lev follow me on twitter follow all these wonderful people here and that's it that's all i gotta say have a wonderful oscar day and be sure to subscribe patreon.com slash break the rules you know it you love it and hollywood's run by satanists good night everybody (laughs) you're not allowed to say that that's a secret take care all right here we go